Hey, you're listening to We Have Such Films to Show You, Episode 9. Uh, I'm Josh Millard, your co-host one. Uh, with me, as always, is Yakov Grinberg, your co-host two. Say hello, Yakov. Hello, party people. You're supposed to say hello, Yakov. It's a, it's a time-honored bit. And Listen, if you told me when, when the rehearsal was, I might have showed up. I... <laughs> It's nobody's fault but yours. I'm so bad at the fake chiding thing anyway. I, I was I was launched into it thinking, oh, this would be a great bit. We'll do the straight, oh, they're fighting. But they're not really fighting, but it's a bit. And then I always just feel like an asshole. And I'm like, oh, but I'm sorry. And Yes. Uh, whew. Well, we're, we're talking about Hellraiser uh, revelations for anyone who is somehow nine episodes into a podcast about the Hellraiser franchise, but doesn't know which film we're talking about, but still knows the films well enough that it would be helpful to tell them. This is not, in fact, we have such phlegm to show you, the Ear, Nose, and Throat Doctor podcast, so you might be tuned into the wrong one if you're waiting for phlegm. Great podcast, though. I've, uh, yeah, you know, wonderful the, podcast. A couple of excellent ENTs. Uh, I enjoy it every time. I, uh, I just end up, you know, coughing, laughing. It's... Just uh, drink a nice big glass of milk while... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I got, I got Josh up very early. It's what it's uh yeah it's seven nineteen over Portland yep. right now. I I have to go to the vet and to my grandmother's birthday, so we're recording this early. And you know it's a uh, it's ten o'clock here on the East Coast. Yep. Yeah. Uh, <sighs> well, I'm 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 used to that differential. Uh, working at Metafilter, like me and me and uh, my coworker Jessamine would uh, sort of like both get up in the morning at the same time in like absolute time. So I'd get out of bed at like seven and she'd get out of bed at like 10. I, I, I always said if, if we had, if the two of us lived on the opposite coasts, if I was over on the East coast and she was the West coast, we never would have needed anyone in the middle of the night. Cause like she, yeah, like getting up and going to bed, there'd be like an hour that the site didn't have somebody staring at it. But uh, I didn't really tell that. I think there was a lot of aplomb there. Yeah. That's like what in that we should movie. Do. Yeah. Uh, uh, Rashomon. No, I was thinking Face Off, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. We were talking about notes, and, and I, we may have mentioned this in passing in the very first episode, but mm-hmm. the, the fact that uh, you take your notes by hand, like you write them down in a little notebook, uh, which is so weird to me because I, I type them because I just, I can't write anywhere as fast as I can type, and I always, like, even... Even at high speed typing, like I always feel like I need to pause a movie and whatnot, and so it ends up taking me that much longer to get everything down. So, yeah, you know, I, I can't actually I can't write as fast as I can type, but because this isn't like a continuous stream, and because I always need to, you know, like I need to go back and underline things and circle things and make arrows, and you know, um, it's just a lot easier to do that by hand than it is on the computer. Like if I was just, you know, trying to you know, get down all the dialogue I found funny or something, then that would be, um, you know, then I would probably type it, but because of the way I just keep going back and forth between things, it's just so much easier to take it by hand. Plus, I don't get distracted by, um, you know, everything else that's going on in the in the, in the blinking glow box. See, I, I'm okay with that. I'll just go over to a, a virtual desktop with nothing else on it and bring up the text editor, and uh, then I don't even really look at it. You know, I'm just, I, yeah. I'm very much touch typing while staring at the screen. That's a pretty good uh, idea. It, it helps. It definitely uh, makes it easy, because I have the same problem. I if I've always got my, my Gmail up, and I'm always keeping half an eye, whether I think about it or not, on the tab to see if there's any new email, and, and so it's always, yeah. 
So I, I respect your I respect your process. You know, we should we should get our notes together at some point. We'll just put them all up side by side for each of the films, which would be really easy for me because I can cut and paste. Uh, yeah. You get a painstakingly photographed page after page after page of your little notebook. So yeah, and also like my handwriting um, just sort of went downhill around <laughs> fourth grade, and you know, around sixth grade, I got the computer, and so. My, uh, it, you know those like self-destructing notes in spy movies. My notes are kind of like that, but instead of self-destructing, maybe about a week after I write them, they're completely illegible. Nice. So, I would make a great spy if anybody from a spy agency is listening. NSA, I hello. Would- <laughs> no, I'm sorry. They're an intelligence, a signal intelligence agency. They they don't. Spy. You know, they just they laid just, off like ninety yeah. percent of their IT staff. They were talking about that. I don't know if they did that or if they were saying they were planning to do that or what. But yeah, like let's get rid of the IT staff because the computers will be self-configuring and that'll get rid of all of our uh, intelligence problems, which is okay. Um, <laughs> good luck to you guys. Clearly, you've been listening in very carefully to you know IT folks discussing the practicalities of how they do what they do. <laughs> I, I almost feel better now because clearly they are not uh, paying that much attention right isn't it so audience have you noticed how we're studiously avoiding discussing the movie at hand you know why it was was, i mean it was so bad yeah it was it was so so, bad i so i remember in in the beginning you know when we just started this we talked about you know it's like it's just getting worse and worse and, and and the movies would get worse and worse and they did in fact you know it was a steady like downhill slope but you know the whole time i was at least you know, I was definitely entertained. I might have been bored sometime during the movie, but at least I was, you know, entertained and there would be, you know, things to point out like, wow, this plot is incredibly inconsistent and, you know, wow, that's a lot to point out. This movie, I was either bored or offended the whole time. It was, yeah, it was, the, I would say that's and that's the biggest issue it has. It's it's dull. It manages to be dull in a way that even the other direct-to-video shoehorn things weren't so much. yeah. Like, at least those tried to have some sort of mood, and this is just a cross between, like, a really shitty home invasion movie that doesn't actually... There's no there, there's no real home invasion to it, even though they're trying to get the mood down. The fact that it doesn't happen until, like, halfway through the movie really doesn't work for it. And the other half is, like, you know, just sort of found footage stuff that's really not shot any better or worse than the actual movie. No, yeah, we're we're going to have to talk about the cinematography yeah. uh, in this and, film a little bit. And and the, the the other thing is, you know, when I say that I was I was offended, I don't mean like my artistic sensibilities were offended. I I don't really I don't offend easily. I just you know, I, I I it's just you know things don't tend to get to me. But whoever wrote and or directed this movie really has some problems with women. Just I mean, wow. Yeah, it's not it's not a it's <laughs> it's not like it's I mean, not great. You know, Women die all over the Hellraiser movies. It's just a thing that happens. But in in this one, it's 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 like gross. It's just at any time, just anything comes up like that. It's it's just kind of gross and creepy, but not in the horror movie way. Just in the a creepy person was responsible for writing this way, and. You know, I, I, I feel bad because, I don't know, maybe the director and the writer had the, the best intentions with this, but it, it just comes off as everything I dislike about horror films and, like, the, the, the mentality of the horror film fandom, of which I am a part of, obviously. Yeah, it was just whew, rough. Well, and we should talk a little bit about... Uh 
because I think we've mentioned this in passing, but uh, we should talk a little bit about the nature of how this particular film came about. Ah, uh, it, which is yeah, it was it was done very quickly, and the writer, by the way, uh, is a longtime Hellraiser franchise makeup honcho uh, Gary Tunnicliffe. He wrote the script, and he's huh. also been the second unit director on uh, some of the previous uh, films. Uh, maybe the last two, maybe the Romanian ones. Um, so, I mean, it's weird, and that actually resonates for me in a way, because uh, this film, and we can talk about this more uh, in a bit, but this, this film was made by someone who is familiar with the source material. That's one thing that's interesting as a change in what you would think would be a positive direction from the last few films that felt very much like they were shoehorned in. This one was clearly full of what I would call fan service under better conditions with lots of little notes that I think very much say, oh, hey, by the way, I saw Hellraiser 1, I saw Hellraiser 2, I read the novella, and here's a script. So this is kind of maybe a a cautionary tale about hubris when we say, you know, hey, we could actually probably write a better Hellraiser script. Might turn out to be like this one. Um, And the director is some guy who I've never heard of who has directed some other stuff, but but yeah. Victor Garcia? Yeah. He's done a few things. The weird thing to me is I, I keep forgetting that this movie is so contemporary. This was 2010. It's two years ago. It got made. 2011 got released. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's like usually when I go and see, well, what have they done since then when I'm looking at the cast for or, or, or crew for one of these films, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what they've done in the last you know, 10, 15, 20 years. But it's like, what have they done since a couple years ago? So, yeah, it's, there's not as much of that sense of what kind of crater did this leave on someone's – uh, career because there just hasn't that been that much time yeah. for anything to happen one way or the other. But yeah, so it was made made super fast. Made like uh, I think they shot it in three weeks after writing it in two. It says the shooting the shooting schedule was eleven days. Yeah, it shows. Yeah. I mean, it shows. I mean, well, it's it, it's a it's a the Mexico stuff is the closest thing it comes to happening somewhere other than just in a living room. Because much of the film is just in a living room, in a bedroom, in a in a house, and then there's Mexico, which is like the sound stadiest Mexico I've seen. <laughs> which you know, maybe maybe they actually sh- ran down to Mexico and and just managed to shoot a real uh, set as as looking like it was shot on set, but uh, I, I kind of doubt it. Maybe they just went to like that. They borrowed the set of a telenovela. Uh-huh, that'd be good. <laughs> If you look carefully, you can see in the mirror, you know, a soap opera going on in yeah. the other room because they had to shoot at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, really. Uh, Doug Bradley, not in this movie. Not in this movie. There's a quote from him being all classy and shit about it. Like, this is just an excerpt from a longer one because he basically says a bunch of things relatively politely. But the, ca- the, the capper is, one way or another, this does not seem to me to represent a serious attempt to revive the Hellraiser franchise. However, I wish everyone who will be directly involved in the making of this film good luck with it. Ah, Doug. Uh, Clive famously only had this to say, uh, which is, hello, my friends. I want to put on record that the flick out there using the word Hellraiser is no fucking child of mine. I have nothing to do with that fucking thing. If they claim it's from the mind of Clive Barker, it's a lie. It's not even from my butthole. <laughs> so two different two different ways to approach uh, the, the the issue, but I think they're basically both saying the same thing, which is according call me to, when there's um, an actual Hellraiser movie. Yeah, according to a, a, a well, they were this movie. Wait, did, did you mention the fact that this movie was shot because they were contractually obligated yeah. to shoot it? Yeah, they, yeah. They, well, they had to exercise the option or they'd lose it. So like, yeah, you know, this is and, and I mean like. 
the 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 only other time I know of like a a, a like a prominent this happening to like a prominent you know IP or prominent franchise was the uh, that Fantastic Four movie directed by uh, who directed it was it Altman no wait that can't be right it was the other guy um, oh come on I don't know I yeah I didn't know there about was this. a a never released Fantastic Four movie directed by. Roger Corman. I get Altman <laughs> and Corman mixed up, you know, because well, they're they, so yeah, similar. They, yeah, they're remarkably similar auteurs, you know. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so what, what happened was... Altman would, would intentionally uh, shoot with improvised dialogue. Corman would shoot without a script. You know, it's, it's the same. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, so there was, it, was, it was in 1994, um, and they, they were going to... Whoever owned it was going to lose the rights to it. So, so they had to shoot something. So they, they, they got Corman. They shot it for um, something like a million dollars. It was never released. It was never meant to be released. Um, and you'd think they would have not bothered to release this, but I guess it's just so cheap to make movies now or well, something. I think that may have been part of the option is the thing. They may have like been required to. like the, 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 A note is made in the write-up about this that uh, they did, in fact, screen it to the public ostensibly. They had it open for one showing in a single theater for the crew, and in theory, the public could come, although presumably they never advertised it and threatened to fire anybody who mentioned it. But, uh, the marquee was just blank that day. Yeah, I think that may have been actually part of their contract to, to maintain the option. It's like, oh, well, yes, but you've got to treat it with dignity, which translates into you've got to put it on a screen somewhere. Uh, I'd be really curious to see what that contract looks like, actually. But uh, the, the cast is mostly people who've actually had plenty of work uh, before. And, I did not and, and, recognize and since- any of these people, although they all acted like... I'm going to say, like, Vampire Diaries quality acting in this. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting. They, the the fact that it's not a bunch of absolute nobodies. Like, like not all of them have had a ton of work, but they all were clearly actors, you know? Yeah. Like, and, and on the one hand, I'd say if you're trying to do a cheapo cash-in thing, why would you... Like, I mean, I don't think they got paid a lot, but they got paid more than if you found some guy off the street. But on the other hand, if they're actually trying to shoot this thing in 11 days on short notice... Maybe you kind of have to hire people who have been acting and have been in front of a camera because you just can't afford the time it would take to find out that someone isn't going to be able to just phone it in. Like you want people who turns can. out all those Romanians you hire don't speak a word of English. Exactly. You know, so you want a bunch of people who are perfectly capable of operating a phone so that they can phone it in mm-hmm. in a timely fashion. And uh, yeah, yeah, the guy uh, playing Pinhead, what's his name? Uh, Stefan Smith Collins. He, it, at the beginning, like the first scenes with him, it really sounded like he was trying to do a Doug Bradley impression, and then they told him to stop. Sort of, yeah. He, his, his, his vocals were a bit inconsistent throughout the film. Uh, and God, what a weird role to step into, you know? Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, you can't really say no if you like Hellraiser at all, but on the other hand, you, you can't really say yes either, you know? It's like, if, if someone's like, hey, yeah, so uh, uh, I, I see you're here early for the Rolling Stones show. Well, uh... Good news and bad news. The bad news is, uh, you know, Keith, he's not doing so well, so he can't play tonight. The good news is, you're going to play guitar. You know how to play guitar, right? <laughs> eh? And you're like, oh, my God, this is the best thing in the world. And I, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, it's like, how do you do that? You know, how do you just, yeah. So, also, that's what the Rolling Stones' uh, agent sounds like, by the way, if anyone <laughs> wanted to know. It's a spot-on impression. Um, 
Yeah, it's, 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 and he's really he's really. And he tried not- he he tried to make the role his own, and he did, and it was bad. What he made out of it was bad. Yeah, he, you know, like he was snarling, and he had an attitude, but not like the sort of like you know, it's like quiet, 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 loud kind of thing that Doug Bradley did. He just like had this, this like sort of like snarling aggression to him, which was really out of character for Pinhead. Yeah, P- Pinhead really should be like. Uh, he sh- he should be sort of like you know bottled fury. You know he should be, uh, and this is how Doug's always sort of done him. Is this uh, this really even cool keel controlled guy who knows that like you know he's going to get his way, and he really only gets angry if you manage to tweak him in the process of him getting his way. Whereas this pinhead was like, this guy should have been the front man for like you know a, a punk band or something, and and actually that'd be a pretty badass punk band. Uh, and 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 I would be entertained to see that on stage at a show, but in a movie, it just reads so wrong. He's like he's like duck face pinhead. Like he looks yeah. like he's shooting a selfie several times in the film. And they and gave him like these uh, contacts. I, I get they, they they gave him contacts that uh, basically made his entire uh, just the, the the parts of his eyes that weren't the whites of his eyes were all black because of these contacts. So, and I guess that was supposed to look scary, but it really just made him look like he had big anime eyes. Did you notice that? <laughs> I did not notice that. There were so many other things to be bothered by that apparently that one got past me. <laughs> yeah, and and the makeup was was not great. For some reason, um, like the like the the grid work between the pins was was red, and I guess it was supposed to be bloody, but it really looked like she, somebody just ran a sharpie down them. Yeah, and yeah. Um, Special effects were there wasn't a lot of special effects in this. I'm trying to recall like the effects shots. There was um, Ross having like oh, th- there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of flaying in this. There's a there's a I mean like the whole movie is just like callback after callback after callback to the first and maybe a little bit of the second Hellraiser movies. And there's actually a uh, this comes up repeatedly. There is a, there's a flaying knife in this that looks like it's specifically made to cut faces off. Yes, yes. That was that, that that was that was a little touch there, but um, yeah, there weren't that many effect shots, but they were definitely better than the last two movies. Yeah, I well, think, the ones that there were. Yeah, and it, it's funny because like the, I, I feel like the the classic effects that there were like callback things like hooks in flesh and stretched out faces and such, they were totally on par with the original film, you know, and and and, and they looked fine. Had they been in you know uh, a better film, it would have been like it wouldn't be it wouldn't be the thing we were complaining about about yeah. that better film because like yeah. yeah, they were totally yeah. That's that's about what. It looks like in a Hellraiser movie when a hook digs into your flesh in close-up. Um, mm-hmm. It really, it, I mean, really, I felt like it effectively evoked the effects sequences of yeah. the first film, which is kind of nice. Um, and and you know what? Speaking of the first film, basically, they, what they did here was that it was a retread of a lot of the themes from the first film, but instead of having like either you know illusions or like kind of like spooky but abstract dialogue, everybody just said exactly what was going on. Like when um, you know when well, I guess we should probably introduce the characters. Um, so there's did, uh, you, did you get any of their like I I, I got Stephen and Nico. 
Yeah, there's, and there's those Steven were the and Nico only were names that boys. like stuck with me. Like I've looked at the others enough that I sort of remember some of them now. But like that was just that was how forgettable everybody was and how they just got jammed into the films. Like oh here's so I've got dad and mom and not dad and not mom for the other couple were the only way. Not I could, dad is named Ross. Ross. And I, yeah, I remember that because uh, his wife just kept shrieking it constantly <laughs> over and over again when she went into like. Italian professional mourner like quality hysterics when when he died it yes. was it, it this movie nobody like has the right emotions at the right moment like when everything starts going to shit in the first place everybody's like all right you know we got to stay cool we got to stay calm like there are a bunch of you know like marines and then you know somebody finally dies and it's just you know all out hysterics and it was it was really weird and that's so that's why i remember ross's name and then the, uh, the little sister or big sister, the the sister, Stephen's sister, mom and dad's daughter was named uh, Emma, and I know that because I was writing down sister something 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 the moment they mentioned her name, and that's how I remembered it. Um, so yeah, I mean the the, the so there's so there's seven characters in this movie basically, and then there's you know Pinhead and uh, the Vagrant, the Vagrant actually yes. uh, from the first was he in the second one. Remember, uh, she was in the second one. Uh, yes, I think he's he definitely was. in the third one. Maybe, maybe, maybe mm-hmm. he wasn't in the second one. Maybe he doesn't have an appearance. I guess nothing really yeah. happened out on the street in Hellraiser yeah. two. So yeah, maybe we never saw him. But so yeah, he's definitely in the third and mm-hmm. sort of. He's the uh, he's the prime mover in this one for yeah. getting the box into the hands of. And I, I think this movie actually, you know, if <laughs> if if we decide this movie's canon, this movie actually confirms the fact that the box actively looks for stupid people. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah I have a man. There's a whole scene with with the vagrant, the hobo dragon, uh, mm-hmm. as he will forever be to me. Uh, there's a whole scene with him that's like such a bad reflection of the way this film sort of cribs off the original film, uh, where he's basically trying to sell the box to the kids in Mexico, but instead of having that sense of inevitability where the box is coming into someone's hands as they think they're trying to negotiate for it, but instead. The hobo dragon knows all along that oh well, this is you know this was meant f- to be with you, which has always happened very very quickly and very like with that sense of creeping oh something has terribly gone wrong here. But in this film, it managed to feel like a used car salesman. He's like, <laughs> what is it going to take for me to get you in a box today? Let's <laughs> let's make it. De- it's the whole thing. It's like no, that's that's all completely wrong and. Although, although to be fair, the vagrant looked like the only actor on the set who was actually enjoying to be there. Yeah, well, he got a lot of he, lines. He did. Um, he did get a lot of lines. Too, um, yeah, too many for that character. But but what do you do? So I mean, yeah. So the basic part of the movie is that uh, you get these. There's these two kids, Nico and uh, Stephen. Stephen. Yeah, Stephen. And they're taking a show name for Mex- the guy who played Pinhead. I'm assuming. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, their last names are Bradley after Doug Bradley and Craven after Wes Craven. Yeah, which which I mean also, I uh, I mean yeah, lemon in a paper cut there uh, on yeah. on naming him Bradley, <laughs> but then Craven, why not Barker? If you're gonna if you're gonna go let's hey let's name him after a famous horror director, you're already giving Clive Barker a big fuck you by making this piece of shit. Why not at least you know immortalize him with your name instead of like picking a completely <laughs> different horror franchise director? It's like what? I don't know. It's an odd <laughs> odd choice. Yeah, it was. It was maybe they were going for the, the 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 rich double meaning of also naming the family Craven because they're afraid to confront their own you know complicity yeah. and guilt and blah blah blah. But you know this film doesn't really earn the right to even do that. So 
Yeah. Maybe the other ones were named Bradley because of uh, basketball star and failed uh, presidential candidate. Uh, oh, crap. What's his name? Something Bradley. Yeah. Bill guy. Bradley? <laughs> Bill Bradley. <laughs> did, did Bill yeah. Bradley run for... He did. I, I think he ran for president, didn't he? I, 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 I just he, he, clearly uh, wasn't paying attention. He lost the primary to Kerry? Ooh. Maybe? No, I can't be. Anyway. It could have been have presciently named. recollections to show you. It, it, it could have been named presciently for Bradley Manning, and this is meditation of man's inhumanity man and the failure of mm. the, the security state. Huh? Huh? That, that works better. That yeah. does work better. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, these two schmucks are on their way to Mexico to get laid. I, 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 think I, bl- I believe like, the plan was to, quote, get your dick wet. Yes. And it was it, also established was that, Stephen. quote, you can get laid at Disneyland. Film starts off strong. I, you know, and, and they're doing the, the film for the weird person who hasn't actually seen the film but wants to listen to it anyway. The film starts with shaky cam camcorder footage. You know, so there these two guys on a road trip and they're filming each other with a camcorder. And this becomes important for a, uh, later in the film when the cinematography changes. Uh, to establish that this is very much all like the opening of the film, the opening, what, five minutes is this shaky cam yeah. uh, excerpt. And it's, yeah, and, and, um, yeah, and it's just like conversation between two people that I don't want to hear talk or be around. If I was sitting near them on the subway and like the conversation that they were having was going on, I'd probably get up and move. It was just that awful yeah it was, it was it was simultaneously like inane and and just sort of like offensive for the sake of establishing that oh man these are a couple of young guys being blah blah and one of the guys is being more uh more uh, aggressively offensive than the other ones so you're setting up a character and so you know, I mean i understand what they were doing with this opening scene they were trying to get us involved in the idea of these two characters the idea that we have this blair witchy found footage thing although in 2011 you can not really just write off that anymore you got to do something a little bit more clever with it which the fame film f- Totally fails to do, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know they're setting it up. They're they're getting these characters. We're going to see see what's happening through excerpts of of their videotape. We're going to see that there's this dynamic where Nico's sort of the actual bad boy, and Steven's sort of his friend uh, who's along for the ride, but maybe less sure about all this, which becomes nicely inverted later in the film. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I know what they were doing. I just didn't yeah. enjoy experiencing it, not because it was challenging, but because it wasn't you know good. I have uh, to say, I was I was really relieved when it, it turns out that the whole movie wasn't uh, found footage because that was some really bad found footage like video. It, it was, you know, I mean, it you can't have it look like straight up actual found footage. You actually have to put some effort into editing it and making sure that you know the camera isn't just completely pointing at nothing of note. You know, like Cloverfield or Blair Witch or just any of those found footage movies. You know, they're, they're, they're actual movies. And the found footage in this was just like, you know, two schmucks with a camcorder. It's, it's you know. Well, and even then it wasn't, too. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, I, on the one hand, like, they're, they're doing these really precise whip pans back and forth in the car, which I'm sorry, you know. Uh, it's like, get your dogma shit together. If you're going to actually <laughs> do the this is shot, you know, by hand, then you can't just put together an edit that pretends to be, you know, a, a, uh, it's, it always bothers oh, me. It's yeah. And, and it, it sort of came to a head when there, there's a scene where, um, Steven is the one who's carrying the video camera and they, they pick up some prostitutes and Nico is, you know, fucking with a prostitute in a bathroom stall. 
And uh, the, the, the whole time, uh, Stephen's sister is at home watching, like, on the camera, the footage that, that she found that, like, their mother was hiding because it was, you know, what it was because the murders eventually show up in the footage. Anyway, so his, his, his sister is just, like, looking at, like, the, uh, the little view screen on the camera and she looks horrified. But then you see, like, and it's just shot back and forth, except instead of just shot, it, it, there's three separate things going on. There's the found footage. There's the sister looking at the found footage, and then there's the scene that takes place while Steven is shooting the footage. Yeah. And it's just, you know, like sort of cutting between all three of these things. And at one point, Steven just sort of like backs out of like the stall and like drops the camera or like he's hanging out of the camera, but his hand is like nowhere, you know, it's just like hanging onto the sink because he got to puke or like wash his face or something. And yet, and but then it's cutting to Nico and the hooker uh, fucking. And then. It's cutting to Steven's sister, who's oh, by the way, she's also Nico's girlfriend. It's cutting to her looking horrified, even though at this point the only thing that she's probably looking at is a bathroom floor. Yeah, because the camera is not pointing at anything. It's it's very it's very problematic because like yeah, they do not have any sort of sense of consistency in conveying the the role of the camcorder that is treated very much as you know a a participant in in the narrative. They don't bother to think about whether or not it's there. And you could you could say that the reason she's inappropriately freaking out right at that moment is she's just like turning inward and, and processing the enormity of the whole thing. But you kind of, again, you have to earn that, you know, in terms of your And she's clearly reacting narrative. to something that's happening on the screen. Yeah. Although, that, in a sense, that's maybe a callback to all the times in earlier Hellraiser movies where people had mistimed uh, reactions due to questionable <laughs> editing. Like, I'll never forget that goddamn staircase late in Hellraiser 3 where J- Jadzia Joey Dax is, is uh, wandering through the horrific club and she's holding her breath and like gasping really quietly but like you know mostly just keeping it in and then and then she comes to a staircase and she just lives out a big old you know frightened oh my god sort of like yipe because it's a staircase because there was nothing there was not and it may have been something that was supposed to be you know shot to be a reaction to like a jump out or something like that but it wasn't there and so this i guess we could say it's a masterful callback uh, to the earlier <laughs> film in the franchise is what's going on there. I, I I almost I almost I could I feel like you could with enough effort write a uh, specious but still uh, semi coherent defense of this film as sort of a parody of the franchise as a whole, like an intentional attempt to deconstruct it by mocking the things that uh, were iconic or that didn't work. Uh, it take a lot of effort, but I feel like I feel like it could be done. Such are the strange yeah. moments in this film that don't yeah, work and on like, their own. Yeah, yeah, and like I was saying, when like everybody was just saying exactly what's happening, um, you, you know, I, I I think did did they ever like specifically point? Uh, what what happens is that there's a scene where um, basically. You know, they they find they Nico and Steven, They get the box from the vagrant. Nico. Um, opens it up in, like, a ritual that sort of mirrors, uh, like, really directly Frank from the first movie with, like, the square of candles and he's shirtless, except now Steven's there actually, you know, recording it. Um, And then, you know, they... Basically what happens to Frank happens to Nico and he's, like, he gets Steven to bring him back, Uh, you know, usually by killing a hooker and then her blood, you know, spills in the mattress and then he pops out of the mattress he's, like... (laughs) Her like blood a, brought me back. I'm like just a, like, wow. Yeah, that's real right jack in the box, point. actually. Uh, 
Like if you compare if you ca- compare Frank's slow recovery to Julia's relatively prompt appearance in Hellraiser Two out of the mattress, this manages to like ratchet up even further. Where it's like, dead or hello, it's Rico, Nico. I'm a I'm a dead guy. Bring me some blood. And if you had no idea that happened in either the first or second movie, the scene would be completely inexplicable. Yeah. I would say that's that's a good point about a lot of the little callbacks in this film because there's things that I was like recognizing as oh hey yeah I I know why you're doing that because I saw that previous film or I read the novella but out of the context of that there's not a whole lot to justify it. and that 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 you are specifically right that's an absurd fucking scene uh, without having seen the first couple of films because like my god can you imagine sitting and trying like even if you got that far into this film all of a sudden a skinless dude pops out of a nat- mattress next to a dead hooker <laughs> it's like hey her blood brought me back get me more and like, oh, ooh, what i what uh so yeah i yeah. do like the fact that this that the, the, the film continues the tradition of completely bizarre non-sequitur lines oh yeah um well, I mean, there was the – I don't even know if they ha- – oh, well, so what happens is that they – so after the, the fucking in the bathroom, um, they both, I guess, pass out in there, and then they wake up, and it, and it looks like uh, Nico murdered the prostitute. But it really doesn't – no part of the, the – where, where they find her body in the bathroom stall, no part of that murder makes sense. She's got wounds on her head. Um, they're bleeding. But also the entire inside of the toilet is covered in blood that looks like it came out pretty violently like somebody vomited blood into the toilet yeah it doesn't look like someone bumped their head on the toilet which yeah, is so like I, I, the only did plausible he like beat her head against the inside of it and then like it, it did no, it there is no hint to as to how she died and i'm not even but it they do, it is implied that he killed her because he's just an asshole and not because of like evil magic right yeah the, yeah there's nothing supernatural in the film so far uh, for them, they're just in Mexico having a bad time, basically. Uh, so yeah, it's not clear what the hell was supposed to have happened there. Maybe he's got internal rage issues that were only being presented with outside. I mean, because if you think that he's he's the Frank analog of the film, and Stephen is the Julia analog, uh, and 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 so. Frank was presented as a sort of menacing, uh, troubled character in the first place. And we sort of get the idea that Nico is a, a, a pushy jerk and an asshole with maybe some impulse control problems uh, from the earlier bit of the found footage stuff we see. Uh, so, you know, so, yeah, I, th- I think you could buy in theory that the idea is that maybe he had some sort of freak out, you know. But uh, the film gives you nothing to work with there. You yeah. just have to imagine that he, for some reason, went into a homicidal rage or she did, in fact, manage to like take a header onto the toilet seat and kill herself accidentally or something, which eh, I don't know. You know, and yeah, I, it's just like a Inspector Clouseau series of like accidents that led to her death. Exactly. I'd like to see that movie. <laughs> I'd like to see the slapstick comedy like scene that leads to her death. It's like, whoops, slips on a thing, gets her hand caught on like the thing, electrocutes herself, it's her head in the toilet, and then uh oh. The Hellbound <sighs> Panther. Yeah. Oh, that'd be that would be a wonderful movie <laughs> with to Jacques watch. Le Marchand. Um, <laughs> oh, Jesus, that'd be terrible. I want to. I want to. I want to return to the the camcorder versus camera thing for a moment too, because mm-hmm. because and this is. I think this was the vicinity of where that happened. It was specifically once we were getting back to the backstory in Mexico, because the, the film opens with the five minutes of them talking on their way to Mexico, and then 
freaking out that the car has been stolen or something. And, and then, where has it been stolen? Because they don't make that clear. Are they already in Mexico at that I, point? Yeah, I think, I think they must have gotten to Mexico, but they didn't bother to establish that. Because it sure does Mexico. look like Los Angeles. Yeah, well, I, I think they may, have, they may have said something like, oh, what the fuck are we going to do? We're in the middle of Mexico or something, you know, elegant like that to solve the problem. Uh, Apparently and, the answer is drink and screw. Yeah, and, and then and then cut to uh, Nico sitting in the square of candles opening the box. So there's there's all the missing time in there, you know, that they decide to get back to later in the film, but they don't get back to it with just the found footage. They start mixing in straight up, you know, uh, proper shooting on a on a nice camera and cutting back and forth in there. But it happens, and it's conspicuous when it happens because like the first time the camcorder shows up on camera, you know, like immediately. Uh, something has gone weird here with the the theory of how this is being shot. Like, okay, we've made a decision halfway through the film to get away from the contemporary action versus videotaped memories to mix in some, you know, properly shot scenes blocked out from multiple angles with, you know, a, a third-party camera that's just not supposed to be part of the movie as opposed to the camcorder as a character in the movie. Uh, Do they even explain how the camera gets back to Los no, Angeles? No, no, they, they just found his effects or something. So there's a bag full of stuff, including okay. the camera and the box and some porno Oh, bags. that's right, yeah, because I mean, Emma mentions that Dad hired a PI. Yeah, who I guess found his, his bag of stuff is all he found. But, but so, so this, this moment when the, they start adding in uh, straight-up cinematography along with the camcorder stuff uh, is, I think, the moment in the film where... Because you already talked about how people keep talking about what's happening. It's, it's sort of a classic, the, the show-don't-tell notion of cinema is like, you know, you've got yeah. a medium that rewards visual narrative, so actually shoot the narrative you want. And I feel like at some point, someone realized that the only way that they were going to be able to get the shots they want to convey uh, what happened in Mexico like the only way they can, they had two choices. One was to show and one was to tell. And maybe they realized that at that point, the script was actually going to be actively worse if they kept doing the telling part where people just sat around saying, well, I'll tell you what I think maybe happened to our dead sons. Maybe they ran into a woman at a bar in Tijuana. And, uh, and, and they're like, oh, this is terrible. No, we, we, we got to show. We can't tell. But we can't show it on the camcorder because – no one wants to sit through it. We can't block the shots the way we want. We can't get reaction shots of Steven, so we can't develop his character. Because if, if they had seriously tried to stick with the camcorder thing, it probably would have been a funnier film. Because the only way we would have gotten reaction shots of Steven watching all this shit happen with Nico and, and the prostitute and so on would be to have like shaky cam footage of bad thing happen and then him pointedly whipping the camera around to go, <laughs> oh my god. So yeah, obviously that wouldn't work. But, uh, but yeah, I feel like that's, that, that's sort of why... Could have been like SNL where Nico's just yelling back, tell me you got a shot of that. <laughs> and the camera just nods up and down. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say the, um, the, the epitome of the, uh, the, the telling and not showing thing was when um, Emma is like coming into the living room with like a big book and she just reads off the definition of the word Cenobite. <laughs> and she was just like, I didn't know what it meant, so I looked it up. <laughs> In case we're confused as to what what exactly it is that she's reading, is, is that the TV guide? No, it must be a dictionary. I'm glad that was explained. And then and then and and, and the Cenobite definition thing is an interesting. Again, it's one of those things. It's like an interesting little bit of fan service that, like, if you're a Hellraiser fan and you've been reading up on it, you may have gotten curious and looked at yourself. Oh no, this is actually a word that refers to you know actual subsections of of monastic. Uh, organizational stuff like the idea that Cenobites were monks that went out into the world and 
and so on. Uh, but but they don't bother with any. She just reads like the terse definition and leaves it at that. And they're like, oh, though, yeah, that's the word they're using. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, let's move oh, on with the scene. Fascinating. Yeah. Okay. That's that's a good time. Yeah. Ah. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, another another thing. So, um, the the the, the house scenes in this movie take place. I, I guess it's supposed to be in L.A. Um, but like the house is in the middle of nowhere. Is you it, know, they said the next the. What would you say? Is it actively supposed to be in LA? Like I, I, I didn't, I wasn't super looking for one or the other, so I don't know if there were any specific. All the way at the beginning of the movie, um, they say it's like you know we're going to Mexico. Goodbye, LA. So I mean, uh, okay, it would, I enough. guess it wouldn't really make sense if they flew into LA to drive to Mexico. So I assume it takes place in LA. Well, and in theory, Stephen thought they were going to Disneyland, which oh, yeah, LA to Anaheim. How much of a drive is that? Is that is that I, I, is Anaheim no. south of LA? I'm gonna look this up. No, it's got to be north because. Because, yeah, maybe Stephen just doesn't have a good sense of direction or doesn't drive, so he wasn't like, oh, why are we going north on... Yeah, I'm still trying to figure out how old they were supposed to be. It, it's really not that clear. It's uh, it's 30 miles from uh, L.A. to Anaheim. Oh, and Anaheim's south. south. Yeah, it's south on I-5. Okay. Well, then that's plausible. Yeah, it's only like a four-hour drive in Los Angeles, 30 <laughs> miles. I'm not even fucking kidding you. No, I believe you. I, uh, there's, uh, there's a reason that I would never live in L.A., and it's... Uh, it's that basically. Um, oh yeah. Anyway, so there's a, there's a scene that takes place outside where um, mom and dad are inviting Ross and uh, Italian widow in. I mean, Italian mourner in. Um, and 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 you know, it's supposed to like the scene is supposed to look like it's twilight outside. So they put this blue filter on the entire shot. But it's really clearly a blue filter because you see like blue altered colors peeking out from like things. Yeah, and it was just yeah, it yeah. Was it was like really just bad. just blatant cheap day as night shooting, which I think we mentioned this previously. I may have mentioned NST yeah. through K about some uh, Joe Estevez film that had uh, conspicuously bad blue filtered day as night shooting, and and it, it this wasn't really any better than a film starring Joe Estevez that MST three K made fun of. Yeah, uh, that's and it's so weird because they ended up shooting night stuff later on too. I, I feel like this is maybe a reflection of the eleven day shooting schedule where they were on day eleven and they're like, oh shit, you know what we need? We forgot to get the establishing shot of uh, the the Bradleys arriving at the Craven House. Uh, we got to do this uh, in the next two hours. But Ted, it's one o'clock in the afternoon. I don't care. Just blue filter it, and then you know, boom. Because. It's not that hard to set up a shot with no dialogue shot from a distance where people get out of a car and hug hello. You know, you can do that with a couple of lights. It can be sort of murky, but I guess maybe they really wanted to keep it with a narrative where it was supposed yeah. to be twilight. It had to be twilight, so we couldn't actually shoot it at night, but we can't wait till you know, yeah. 8 p.m. I mean, you could also have a shot indoors where the doorbell rings and they say, oh, that must be the Rosses. Yeah, but that would be ham-handed. Yeah, We're no, making a I quality mean... film here. <laughs> <laughs> We rented this fucking location. We're going to shoot it from the outside. God yeah, damn it. Exactly. Um, yeah, that was... And and I mean, they're just there for a, a, a dinner... Oh, yeah, so they're at the dinner party, and, you know, Dad uh, makes a toast, and the daughter is just like, oh, I'd like some wine, too. And he's like, nice try. And the girl's, like, clearly, like, 17 or 18. You know, give her some wine. She's... She's not like eight. Well, dif- dif- different families have different policies on that, I suppose. I mean, I, I think I, I don't think there's something automatically, obviously, out of character there. Like I can buy that, you know, they'd be like, "Hey, not till you're 21," you know. But uh, but at the same time, that does clash a little bit with the fact that they're trying to sort of vamp her up to. She's wearing that that uh, 
blouse with a real low, like, like, like a stripe really down to the like belt yeah, like down the, to the, the navel it, of uh, cutaway. So it's like she's, she's obviously doing the I'm dressing like an adult thing, but I don't know. Trying to speculate on the internal motivations of this family is, is hard because I don't care. Yeah. Um, because there's, really, there's supposed there's to be a to big revelation that there's an affair between two characters taking place and I have never been less interested in a revelation in a movie before well, it was so broadcast at the, right at that opening scene too like after the shaky cottage then the, the Bradleys come over and they sit down to dinner and they drink their wine and there's like there's like knowing glances between everybody at the table and establishing unhappy marriage between everybody at the table Inside of like a minute, like it's it's a pretty concise, if ham-handed bit of character setup there. Uh, so like you, you like you wouldn't even be surprised even if you cared about them because you're like, oh, so clearly, clearly, dad and not mom have some sort of thing going on from the way they're glancing at each other, and clearly, not dad thinks not mom's kind of a lush, and clearly, mom and dad are having a troubled marriage, and yeah. Was, yeah, and yet, and yet, like the just the interaction between Larry and Julia in the first Hellraiser movie was so like I mean that was like Hepburn and Tracy compared to this. <laughs> you know that was like you know quick witted dialogue shooting back and forth compared to just like everybody in this you know doing their uh, you know like a WB primetime uh, you know television show uh, side character quality acting and um, so apparently like. Uh, the, the box came back to the house and it made, um, you know, it makes Emma into, like you said, like sort of a vamp. And it's really funny because there's a scene where, um, there's an earlier scene where something spooky is happening. I think maybe like uh, Stephen mysteriously returns after she, you know, she fiddles with the box a bit and then Stephen just pops up out of nowhere um, in the backyard and they bring him back and like everybody's terrified. And um, so Emma and uh, Mrs. Ross, um, who is and everybody in this movie is roughly the same age. There is not more than ten years between any two characters, including the people playing each other's like parents and children. So anyway, Emma and Mrs. Ross are sitting like really close to each other, almost kind of cradling each other in a way that's more than a little weird for, you know, a family friend and like their daughter to be. And I'm just like, you know, maybe I'm just reading a bit too much into this. And like two scenes later, Emma is just straight up trying to nail Mr. Ross yep. or Dr. Ross or, oh, wait, no, hang on. Craven, crap. No, no, uh, Dr. Bradley, yeah. the, 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 the other, the, the, the friends who aren't mom and dad are the Bradleys. And then the, the, the core family with Emma and mom and dad are the Cravens. So she's trying to oh. nail Dr. Bradley. Yes. Let's go and, back to Dr. Uh, Ross, though. Let's make this a friend's spinoff. I think we could get some mileage out of that. I, I can't, I can't I, you know, like last time we couldn't keep track of the character names, so I pulled up the IMDb entry. I have it open in front of me, and I still have no idea. <laughs> there's the so, yeah, it's, there's nothing memorable about, uh, yeah. You know, I, uh, we, sh- we, we mentioned effects earlier. There's the box in this uh, managed to run this weird line between like a reasonably good mechanical effect and slightly cheesy CGI effect, because like the box you know, opens and moves as nicely as it has in probably any other films. Uh, but it's also got this blue glow that wasn't really it's like there the before. It's of radiation coming out of yeah. it. Like it's the, uh, yeah. And it's, it's not I like mean, coming I, out of a hole in or anything. It's just, it just suffused with glowing, which I guess compared to hand animated lightning is 
you know, not really bad, I, but... I, I think that's sort of like inexplicable bloomy glow is the hand-animated lightning of, like, now. Because <laughs> yeah. it's just really easy to do, yeah. and, you know, might as well just throw it in there. Yep, it's less conspicuous than that that was back in the day, so it's got that going for it. And also, they always do the blue room... Like, 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 when the box is being opened, you get the blue sort of light through the rafters. Although, with the exception of, like, the end of the film, you never see any rafters. It's like they just... <laughs> You've just got light coming through rafters, and that's a shame because, like, the rafters was—it's a, a really nice, real simple visual yeah. to cut to. It's, it's, it's spooky to look at that, and you know, it's like, what's happened to this room? Where did this come from? You know, it may not make sense, but at least it looks nice. But then they—we didn't even get to see those until the end of the film. You know, we just get weird blue stuff, and yeah. Let's see. You know, one thing I did notice uh, when uh, Nico opens the box down in Mexico. Uh, there's a uh, sort of sound of church bells pealing. Um, well, it's which, Mexico. There's a shitload of churches here. <laughs> as, as, the- as Stephen says, yeah, or, 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 or as Nico said, one of them says that, and I was like, no, man, it's not a fucking church. Um, but this is, this is totally a little detail from the novella. So again, with like being familiar with the source material, like this, I don't think this ever appeared in any of the other films, but it's in, like when Frank opens the box in the book, uh, there is like that specifically mentioned is that there's, you know, the sort of peeling of church bells from an impossible distance sort of thing. So it's like, on the one hand, it's like rewarding close reading and I'm like, yay. And I'm like, yeah, but that doesn't make the movie better. And like, it's not even consistent with the franchise where either there was no specific noise or there's sort of music boxes. So it's like, I don't know. I don't know what it's going for. This film really seemed confused in its motivations, which again, it was, it was a rush job as a cash in, but still first draft. Yeah. They they shot the first draft they wrote. Yep. Um, you know what, actually the, uh, the scene with, with that, like the first time that they, the pinhead comes, there was, there was that, and there was a couple of other shots where the cinematography, actually, there was a couple of like really well composed shots that may have only been well composed for like a couple of seconds, but that was one of them because what happened was you know he gets the box open, everything turns blue, and then we cut to the to the hand cam footage, and then Pinhead is just there, and you know like Steven's terrified, so the camera's shaking, and I thought that was actually kind of nice, like it was just like a well made shot because they realized that they didn't have the effects for like a grand Pinhead entrance, so if he just appears, that's also kind of you know pretty fucking scary. Yeah. He's just like nothing, and then he's there, so. I think that was handled pretty uh, pretty well. There was another shot where, um, they're, uh, right before they they meet the vagrant, uh, they're just like sitting in a barn in, T- in Tijuana, and it's like it's uh, one of those um, like sort of Kubrickian shots where like all the perspective is going to like a central point, and they're just like sitting there with beers, and that was also like a surprisingly well composed shot for um, you know what we were watching. I, I feel like the 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 DP on this is actually a a, a person of, of of some skill that was you know crippled by everything that he had to work with on yeah, this movie. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't well, it wasn't a lack of raw capability. It was just like a lack of the the time and the resources and the will to uh, get the stuff right and put together a nice coherent looking film out of it. Um, they could handle a camera. And yeah, the, 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 the DP actually has a, done a bunch of work. I looked that up. He's, he's got like 40 cinematography oh, yeah. credits and like 40 camera and electrical along with that. So, so yeah, it's like, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't, yeah, he was for the lack DP of, on a couple of the Saw movies. Yeah. Yeah. Like Saw 2, 3, and 4, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and the, 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 the creepy glancing shot of camcorder footage of Pinhead actually would have been great if they'd stuck with that sort of 
notion and like you know re-mystify the character but they do that a, a bit early in the film and then later in the film it's just lecturing pinhead walking around and chewing scenery and it's like uh no it doesn't uh don't really and not even in a particularly to... entertaining way either yeah also i want to say uh the, the the dead hooker in the bathroom thing uh very hellraiser 5 very very callback to hellraiser mm, 5 yeah. uh, so inferno yeah inferno. yeah yeah with the detective and and all that and uh, one of the Cenobites from Hellraiser Five was there too. Yeah, so the we had uh, we only we had two technically three Cenobites in this. We had a female Chatterer who was basically a cross between the female Cenobite and Chatterer. Um, we had one of the twins from Inferno, and then we had um, you know the mini me Pinhead. Yeah, Nailhead. I've I've been calling him. He, he's he's credited as a pseudo Pinhead. Sure. I, I, sure. Yeah, sure. but um, yeah, Pinhead decides to, to 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 make himself a son or whatever. Although we also get a brief shot of like two maybe flayed, degloved women sort of hanging from chains, making out with each other. At, oh, yeah, like, that's in the same that's right. in the same shot. So it's like it's like uh, we've got one of the lady twin Cenobites by herself, but also a couple mm-hmm. uh, skinless ladies making out. It's weird messaging. <laughs> I like maybe she's <laughs> got her own franchise. She's like, I gotta find myself some new lady twins to be all pursuing this stuff. Um, single most unappealing sex scene in the entire <laughs> Hellraiser franchise in this movie. Steven, who is he's sort of um he's kind of like wispy. He's got he's got that 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 ladies haircut that um Kurt Russell had in the thing. Um, and, and he's sort of just like, and he, he's, he's annoying and he's just like, you know, just like a skinny, annoying little boy. And he gets a sex scene with a prostitute that turns into like creepy, rough sex that he eventually beats her to death during. And it's just, ugh. yeah. And uh, that, ugh. yeah, it was, it was the, so, so, so we made sure that we had some actual, you know, sex scene in the movie. So check off that Hellraiser series box. Uh, it, it, it turns into grumpy. Uh, sex from behind so again with hellraiser 5 he's really channeling that crappy detective from hellraiser 5 uh in in this scene i feel like because there's this unhappy looking sex from behind uh and yeah i think that was the point in the film where we went from just like cleavage to actually having uh toplessness so check that they were covering okay but we need to do the the bad sex yeah portion of the program like that was their contractual obligation for that side of things and so you know they chose these the the literally the one person who you probably wouldn't want to see naked in this movie and yeah let's make him naked sorry sorry guy who played steven you're you're, yeah i mean yeah sorry dude it's we're talking about messaging here your your, your body is fine be proud of your body um Because I'm sure, I'm sure high on his list priorities is tracking down podcasts about this terrible film he was in. Oh um, God! What if he has like a Google alert for Hellraiser Revelations? Oh man, we apologize, uh, buddy. We apologize. We'll buy you a beer if you're ever in New York or Portland. Yep, <laughs> buy you a beer. You know, I had this idea about Pinhead. Uh, this Pinhead is obviously so different from you know the Douglas Bradley Pinhead we're accustomed to. What if the idea is that this is literally Pinhead's understudy? Maybe like this guy was built 
buy proper Doug Bradley because it's not like anybody ever checks anybody's papers. No one's like, "Hey, you, I don't know, I'm not sure you're really Pinhead. I'm going to need to see some ID, buddy." You know, it's like who's policing this? So maybe Pinhead, maybe it's a Dread Pirates Roberts sort of thing where Pinhead himself, he's sort of weary of all this BS. He's like, "I'm tired of doing all this stuff. I'm going to go take a vacation somewhere." Uh, but he's got a the role needs to be filled, so he takes some hapless dude and he pinheads him up and sort of tries to give him the rundown. And the guy's not super getting it, but he's got the basics. And Pinhead's like, uh, "Okay, that'll do. Yeah, just uh, I'll be back in a couple weeks." So this new guy is vamping around because it's actually a totally different guy, uh, <laughs> and that's where we get the nailhead thing. He he decides to pull the same thing off. He's like, "Hey, this making minions thing—that's a really good idea. I should do some of that. Maybe I'll do a guy, but I don't." I can't just do pinhead again. I mean, I'm pinhead. I, I don't nail head. That's what I'll do. They'll be farther apart. Yeah, yeah, and bigger nails. And uh, so maybe that's what's going on. We're supposed to actually read this as specifically a different reflection on the idea from a different, uh, you know, fundamental character portraying the the mythological role of pinhead. Eh. So literally, just yeah. So pinhead went on vacation, and this is what we end up with. Yeah, exactly. That's the. Uh, you know yeah, that would work yeah that's <laughs> yeah that that makes okay good movie good okay, movie yeah well done i've i've changed my mind completely it's a masterful uh, meditation yeah. on the nature of role playing and you know he's not as as good as picking you know picking people to work with the box as regular pinheads so you end up with these idiots and yeah yeah that'll work and you'd mentioned uh, you'd mentioned earlier the sort of the home invasion like feel of the movie which is like yeah it's it's like dog day uh, eternity, I guess. Yeah. Uh, the thing is, they they start developing like the home invasion tropes before the home is invaded. Yeah, and that doesn't work. There, you there, have to invade the home first. Yeah, there has to be some reason for this some tension. To it. Yeah, they're they're just sort of like, and, and so the 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 cars disappear, which. I don't know if that was supposed to happen metaphysically or if, in fact, reincarnated suddenly back somehow. Stephen. Did drive them Snuck away, the like he actually literally without yeah. anybody hearing. He jimmied the lock, like when he was in hell, he learned how to 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 jimmy a window, and he put it in neutral and took off the parking brake and just rolled it down the hill, so no one heard any engine noise. He went to make her fair hell. Yeah, I, I guess because uh, either that or they were zapped away by the magic of the box or something. But uh, it's not clear to me how he got back. I guess the idea is that uh, Emma. Uh, Sis was was playing with the box and got it open enough that that opened a bit of a gateway and he managed to make a getaway out of hell and back into the real world. But then he really really, really wants to get the box open so that he can make it. So he wants to like like he seems to understand that they're going to come for him, but he wants the box so he can open it up so that he can like I don't know be ready to have a conversation about how they should uh, how Pinhead should take someone else instead of him. Like he's got this negotiating tactic that's clearly a callback to uh, Hellraiser one and Hellraiser two with Kirsty. Uh, it's got the really wanting the box, it being super important to him uh, thing that uh, Frank had going on in the first film. So it's, again, it feels like the, the idea of trading, and I, I think the, the the whole trading thing that uh, that was again rehashed in uh, Hellseeker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. six. So yeah. It's, uh, you can't just uh, you can't just pull the things out and just glue them together. It doesn't actually make a good story. But yeah, so we've got the the cars are gone. The cells phones won't work. The phone line is dead. Well, cell phones just wouldn't work in the first place because they're out in the middle of war- yeah. nowhere. Apparently, 
Uh, and then the landline is dead, and I guess Stephen cut the landline as well. I don't know. And also, the guy who played Dad, the guy who played Mr. Craven, uh, he's like Scottish via Africa or something, and he's totally playing an American, and he does a pretty good job most of the time, but every once in a while, like when, especially when he's acting a little <laughs> bit more, you know, there were a couple shots that I, they didn't have the time to ADR or reshoot, I guess, where he clearly sounds like a guy with not a, uh, you know, American accent. Yeah. Um, I sort of noticed that about halfway through the film when he was yelling at some point. You know, I just watched uh, Pacific Rim recently, and I still cannot figure out what the hell was going on with Idris Elba's accent. <laughs> cannot for the life of me figure out what that was supposed to be, but it had to have been intentional. Have you seen it? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't remember having any super specific impression of his accent. I was just so happy it was Idris Elba that I was like, whatever. Yeah. You can, I you mean, can lapse is. into tongues if you want to. <laughs> You look badass. I buy it. Yeah. No, I'm sure oh, I'll, um, I'll, I'll give it a listen when I rewatch it because I'm sure I'll eventually rewatch it. Such a good, everybody go see that movie. It's it's fantastic. It's, it's just really time. wonderful. A lot better than this. Yeah. Um, oh, so at the point where, you know, like the home is being invaded by a question mark, um, what is it? Uh, the uh, Bradley asks uh dr ross you know do you have a gun and he's just like there's like you know like a pregnant pause he's just like yeah and then the the wife is just like what and then you know you think he's got like you know a handgun or something he was hiding like you know in an upper shelf like in a hell seeker he, he's got a big ass like double barrel shotgun yep he was just it's like oh yeah it's like oh the you know the old shotgun i never told you about and hid it, it was, was actually then, a pump action shotgun was it yeah <laughs> it was yeah and and um, clearly not a very powerful one because he eventually takes a gut shot with it <laughs> and lives for, for, for what point seems blank. to be yeah. several hours in not any sort of clear pain. Um, I, I feel like I feel like there's this there, there's this popular notion of a shotgun as a gun that like shoots a big wide spray, and I mean that's the nature of a shotgun if you're firing you know shot with it rather than slugs. Um, that yeah, it's got it's got a little bit of a cone. But it's not like it's not like a giant umbrella of like I don't know cartoon uh, blunderbuss or whatever. It's uh, it's still a pretty focused pile of stuff. And if you shoot someone from four feet away with it, it's not just going to give them sort of an oozy stomach wound. You know, you're shooting someone with a gun from point blank range. It's going to do kind of terrible things to them. It's it's a yeah, weird thing. And then thing. all the way at the end, uh, he peels off a really accurate like shot directly into the heart with a shotgun. Well, see, what I'm saying is, I think that part is reasonably accurate. Like, if you're is right it? near someone, yeah, you're not going to get like a gigantic thing. You're going to get a pretty tightly focused pile of shot hitting someone from from just a little bit away. You know, it's like it, it, I, I blame. You know what I blame? I blame society. Well, always, but also first-person shooters. Uh, not, 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 not for the violence, but for the need to diversify the weapons you're carrying around. So when you find a shotgun uh, and you want to shoot something across the room, you're like, oh, man, I really got to get up close because this thing is not accurate from a distance, which is great for an FPS where you're balancing. If you're tied on ammo and you have to adjust your tactics so that you can effectively shoot things from various places when you've got this weapon or that weapon has ammo, okay. But like as a result, like it's impossible to kill someone from like, you know, 30 feet away with a shotgun and an FPS. Whereas in reality, you just kill them with a slightly larger, you know, entrance wound, essentially, you know, it's, so it's maybe, maybe that's the thing. Maybe that's what's like gotten in the popular imagination that shotguns are like crazy, you know, dog cones of weapons or something. 
And um, oh, you know what else? There was um, there was repeated setups for the gun going off in non-intended matter because, like, first the wife is like terrified that uh, her husband has a gun. Second of all, um, Bradley picks it up and Ross is like, "No, give me that. You're drunk. It'll go off by accident." And there was something else. And yet, the gun in this movie goes off three times, and each time it's hit, it hits its target dead on. I was really disappointed there was no nobody accidentally got shot in this movie. Yep. Yeah. It's especially with how much they were building it up. It's almost, it almost becomes a commentary on irrational fear of guns rather than like a rational concern over the introduction yeah. of like a mechanism of violence into the situation. Yeah. It's like, well, I don't know where you're going with that then. Uh, other little notes. At one point, uh, Emma manages to open the box and she gives it a weird half twist across like a diagonal mm-hmm. axis that uh, I think we may have seen once in a previous film. Yeah, but I was definitely not remember seeing it. it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe in three somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so there was there was that little bit. I thought that was interesting. Um, there's there's a repeated thing. We keep getting shots in the early film of like there's a cutaway shot from from action going on in the living room to Pinhead in a blue yeah. room with chains hanging down. It's clearly a Pinhead sort of room. But and then the dialogue from the living room becomes a sort of like washed out echoey thing that we're hearing as if from a, a distance or through a wall or something. Yeah, it's I like, thought that was happening. Like, is that happening in the basement? Yeah, or? well, I think I think it's like a like like a trans dimensional foyer he's hanging out in. Like he's just waiting for the door to open, so he's literally like in the antechamber to reality. <laughs> so he's just sort of hanging out, listening, and because he we get reaction shots like someone will like touch the box and it'll cut to that scene with him, and he's sort of looking around like, did somebody say my name? You know, my ears are burning. Exactly. And this skinhead, you could believe those were the actual lines if he'd spoken <laughs> at that point. Uh, yeah. The, the big long scene, I, I talked about how the hobo dragon got a lot of lines in this. Uh, and so he's, he's sort of rattling off a litany of standard stuff and he's showing them the box and the kids are like, what's that? It's like experience, a form of, you know, ultimate arousal. Uh, it's like oh, like, oh, what, like sex? sex. Sex has limits. So does killing. What the fuck do you mean by that? Yeah, it's like the uh, whole thing's hand. But but he's really so he is. He's so chatty and he's hard selling. He's really doing. It's like he's Ricky Roma in Glenn Gary Glenn <laughs> Ross. You know, he's really really trying to move this condo. You know, and uh, I, I I think he's much better as taciturn creeper than he is as as this sort of yeah. thing. Although he he recycles the it's not for sale. It was yours all along thing. But apparently when you're in Mexico, you just add amigo to lines that you recycle from previous films. So he's like, it's not for sale. It's yours already, amigo. Uh, which, uh, like, I don't know. Would, would the Hobo Dragon care that he was in Mexico? Would he be like trying to put on the local flourish? Or if he's trying to do the hard sell thing, go for the, go for like the, uh, you know, fish out of water expat sort of thing and like be really American and like help these kids understand that you're from where they're from and they're feeling disoriented, but you're, you're, you're their pal. You know I mean? You know what's been amazing in that scene actually? What? If they agree to take the box and then he just like sort of removes the way, removes like the, 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 the hair and the mask and it's Jean Parmesan PI. (laughs) (laughs) Tracked him to Mexico. Yep. Uh, If only someone's, arm had come off and then that's why you don't bargain with Cenobites and <laughs> basically everybody just stop listening to this go watch Arrested Development again it's uh, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a good time uh, uh, we've, there, there's a scene after like like more of the flashback that's shot with a proper camera there's uh, uh, the face cutting off scene which is where we start to really hint that this was maybe not Steven back at the house uh, in, at when they cut off Steven's face 
Yeah, and, um, and, and he when, says, when Stephen, uh, "Oh yeah, go ahead." Yeah, so Stephen's sitting there with his his bloody skinless face, and he says, "Pain and pleasure are indivisible," and smiles all creepily. Uh, so I guess that's where we see that Stephen's starting to really get on board with this whole Cenobite action. It's eleven twenty-five, and the bells of the church across the street are ringing. Uh oh. Hmm. This is this is where you have to edit in some uh, Wait, you know, effects shots of uh, that's no, no. I'm not even kidding. Yeah. There's a church I live across the street from, and the bells are ringing. But it's eleven twenty-five, which seems like an odd time for it. Um, oh yeah. So what happens is um, when Stephen comes back, he well he he comes back wrong, and he really tries hard to act like Crispin Glover, and it just really <laughs> does not take. Because, I mean, he sort of looks like discount Michael Pitt, and he acts like discount Crispin Glover, and the conversation just doesn't – I mean, the combination just doesn't work. just doesn't work at all. I would have loved to see Crispin Glover in this, though. Oh, that would have been amazing. And, you know, the the guy who plays Stephen, who who then has to play Stephen as Nico wearing Stephen's skin, pretending to be Stephen, but actually he's Nico. I mean, give the guy credit. He he had sort of a a, a tall order in an already – you know, problematic film. And I, I feel like he does a good job of at least committing himself to chewing the scenery and being the character transformation of being, actually, I'm a horrible asshole who's not like Steven. <laughs> and but, in a yeah. very teenage way, sort of like, if you told me that like the scene where he like holds the entire family hostage at like shotgun range and tells them all what he hates about them. If you told me that like a angry 15 year old wrote that, I would totally believe you. <laughs> it just it really does come off like the rant like the like the revenge fantasy of an angry fifteen year old who has to sit in his room instead of, you know, go to the concert that he wanted to because he failed a test. Yeah, there's there's it's, it's very effectively petulant, I would say. Yeah. Uh we, we you, oh, also, um so before before we do find out that it's actually um Steven uh oh, that it's uh, Nico wearing Steven's skin, there's a scene where um so Basically, he's, he comes back, and he's, like, all fucked up and PTSD-ish. Um, so they get him in bed, and they ask Emma to bring him some soup. And first of all, apparently, this, the, 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 there's no spoons in this household because everybody drinks soup out of the bowl by grasping the opposite end and sort of pouring it into their mouth. And this is not, like, a hand bowl. This is a large bowl. So that was weird because yeah, it, both he and his sister drink it like that. Yeah, it, it made me think of, like, you know, like we're making some sort of uh, bid towards, like, classical Japanese cinema, maybe? Which yeah, doesn't, it's, it was like a... Which doesn't make any sense because nothing else supporting it, but yeah. Yeah, it was... It, it. I mean, it just looked like they just forgot to buy spoons for the set, and they're just like, uh, fuck it, just just drink out of the bowl. Um. Anyway, and then so Stephen then just uh, pretty not slowly seduces his sister. And, like, there was, like, some kind of, you know, there was, in, in the first movie, there were just, you know, between, um, like, Frank and uh, Kirsty, and then between, like, L- Frank, who, wearing Larry's skin and Kirsty, there were, you know, some, like, incestuous overtones. But, again, those were overtones. In this, it's just, like, you know, they eventually just start making out. Yep. And I just, in my notes, I just have the word creepy written over and over and over again <laughs> yep. for two straight lines. Well, and I, w- I want to talk about this this whole sequence of events, because it, it, it really is, like... The, the the dark heart of the weirdness that is the the throwing together of this movie. So you had mentioned previously how she got all sort of like 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 uh, vampy uh, when she was handling the box. So we've got a scene where she's sitting in the living room with uh, Ross Ross Bradley, not Dad, where she's talking to him about the box, and and she's like, oh, you have to want, you know, you, you, you can't try too hard. You have to, 
it, it wants to be open, but you have to want it to open, you know, and, and it, it's feeling very deliberate. And then she's sort of fondling and getting sort of gaspy and, and, and sexy moany and whatnot. And he's sitting there looking uncomfortably attentive to the whole thing, like, you know, almost appropriately torn between being like, well, that's sort of a weird, sexy thing going on, but also this is a really weird situation. And that's my friend's daughter. And also, a uh, kid came back from being missing and my kid's gone. You know, it's like, you, you would expect someone to be in all sorts of weird conflict if they were having any sort of like, you know, sexual response to the whole thing because it's like the worst place for it. Uh, but anyway, so she does that and it's like the film is very, very flat out. Like, you know, it's going to the wall on this whole opening the box is like a sensual experience thing that the previous films had sort of only sort of like hinted at at times with the sort of compulsive. So she has that. She has the, the Moni Gatsby where she gets him and leave and she sort of trails a hand across his back too as like the, 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 the sealing the deal on this is a weird, uh, you know, sexifying box thing. And then she goes into the, to take the soup into Steven, who's actually Nico and they do the bowl thing. And, and he's like, and, and she's something, Oh, did you bring me anything? You know, cause he's back from Mexico. Uh, and I think she was just trying to be like a joking thing. But anyway, and he's like, Oh, I did. He's like, she really, really you brought me something. He's like, yeah, the box, I got that for you. And she says, seriously, I love that thing. It's so cool. I love the power glove. It's so bad. It's so bad, yeah. And then that that leads to a little more soup sipping. And then here's an important thing about the soup sipping. She sips some soup. And so she's got some sip soup on her lip. And then he reaches across and he touches her lip. So we've got hand-on-mouth action. It's, <gasps> no, it's not right. blood, but it is. It's, so again, going back to Julia and Frank and whatnot. And so it's like the lip touching with the soup. That leads to the uh, leaning in and the incestual kissing and then the breast fondling. And then she's, as he's reaching into her dress and grabbing her breast, uh, we cut to, you know, blue filter dimensional foyer area where we get like a quick flash of like, an alternate version of him, like ripping the the skin off her breast. I guess it was a real quick shot, yeah. but like trying to suggest something like that, and she mm-hmm. sort of like reacts with a start and walks away. So like, well, no, first she reacts with a start, and then she realizes what's going on, and then she sort of runs out of the room. Yeah. So there was like there was like two like a double thing in there yeah. where a double whammy, if you will. Yeah. yeah. But, oh man, that whole scene was just. Whew. Yeah, the whole thing. Yeah. And and they come back to that. That's sort of how they finish up the film, too. So everything else happens. Basically, everybody gets killed and whisked off to hell, or, or you know, not necessarily in that order, uh, except for her and dad. And dad's lying, gut shot, and dying. Uh, and they're Which back in the living room. Which for hours. Yeah, and they're, and they're back in the living room, where uh, previously she has opened the box uh, in the living room at gunpoint uh, from Nico as Steven with the gun, after he lectures everybody, he makes her open the box while she kneels. They, they put together a nice collection of candles in a square and everything. Let's mm-hmm. stick with the callback. Uh, and he open, she opens the box and all this hell stuff happens for the finale of the film. And then she's back in the living room. Her and Gutshot Dad is dying. And she reaches across the table. Like she sees the box, she reaches out and grabs it. And she's clearly distraught because her dad's like dying or has just died. And she reaches yeah, across died. the box. He, he, he has like, he has his dramatic death scene. Yeah. Uh, you can tell how invested I was in the character that I didn't even really care whether or not he did, apparently. And, you know, I should be clear. I just watched this, like, 
less than 12 hours ago. I came home last night and I finally, because I just kept doing it. I was yeah. like, I got to fucking do it. I got to fucking do it. Sat down and watched it last night, typing these notes up. Uh, and, I took and, a 40 minute long walk after dinner <laughs> <laughs> before watching this last night. So she reaches across and she grabs the box and then she starts to get sort of like a little bit of a mysterious, vampy, sultry look and looks not quite at the camera, but sort of just off camera. And, really? And I thought she was looking directly at the camera. That's what I, it looked like. I want to say it was like 10, 15 degrees off. Like, cause I was thinking, oh, is, is she going to look at the camera? But I don't think it was. I think it was like just enough. Now here's it's... the question. Was it off because it was a, an artistic decision or was it off because she just missed making high contact yeah, with they, the camera? Did they have the wrong mark? Maybe they had two cameras rolling even. Uh, regardless. Yeah, she does that. She, so she's immediately back into, oh, me in the sexy box. And then cut to black and roll credits. And yeah, it's like, I have no idea what that was supposed to be implying. Is she coming after us or I, I think it was maybe suggesting that pinhead was right to cause. Okay. So let, let, let's talk about this, this climactic scene. This is, uh, Steven reveals the, that the two parents were having an affair, um, calls sister on making out with, what she thought was her brother, you know, he's doing this whole thing and he's like, open the, open the box or I'm going to fucking kill your mom. I'm going to shoot her in the head. This is after he's shot the dad. Uh, and, and, uh, and so she opens the box and everything gets all hellified. And finally we get to see some actual rafters with light coming through in the walls of the living room and pinheads there and there's chains and the pillar of souls is back. Uh, a lot less well going, made now and now yeah. it just looks like it's made out of it, this is like the Ikea pillar of souls <laughs> Pinhead took the real one with him on vacation Soul Pilska um, <laughs> and, and, and so then uh, let's see various bad things happen to people uh, um, the, the, the dad I think is basically unharmed and as you note later he, he managed to shoot someone with the, the shotgun uh, mom gets chained up and torn away. Well, what um, happens is that oh God, um, no. yeah. basically like, so, so Nico in Steven's skin, you know, um, Pinhead uh, gets him and, he, and you know, he's just like, she opened the box and he's just like, yeah, nice try or whatever it is that he did. And then, um, you know, right before, uh, right, right before Pinhead's about to, you know, finish up, uh, dad, like, you know, with his like dying breath, basically like grabs the shotgun and uh, kills you know Nico, um, and who's just like thank you. And Pinhead's just like, what the fuck did you just do? Yeah. I and mean, he, he doesn't him- actually say that. He's just like, do you do realize whatever I had in store for him was going to be a lot worse than that? Yeah. And now I'm out of body. Yeah, he gives so he that, gives a speech and he uses the phrase deficit of flesh. And it's it's kind of implied that I think at this point that he's going to go for the you know the daughter sister yeah. Emma, but instead it goes for the mom and you know and it's hooks for her you know hooks in her face hooks in her flesh and she gets pulled screaming into the darkness uh, to to pay the deficit of which I want to say I feel like once you're in the dimensional foyer there and everybody's chained up it seems like just shooting someone wouldn't work like I feel like we're in. Hell's domain, the labyrinth domain, you know, Pinhead's kind of got control over life and death here. Because if someone could just die of a bad wound, how would you ever make this whole situation work of an eternity of torture and mangling? You know, it seems like you shouldn't be able to just shotgun someone there. It should be like, oh, well, look, now you got to the gut before I got to. That's really rude. 
I've got to take sloppy seconds. I've got to get him into, you know, I got to get him patched up so that I can tear his guts apart correctly. It shouldn't be like, oh, you killed that guy. Because I don't, uh, but asking for coherence. Only I had the power to bring the dead back to life. It's like, uh, yeah. What, Xenobites? No, no, huh? Yeah. Yep. Uh, Oh, and also, uh, 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 Not Mom shouts, uh, you know, he made her open the box, and for that, she gets like chains into either side of her throat, tearing them open and. Has, then, yeah, has a really just sort of like dramatic choking to death scene that, that is just, she's a terrible actress. Yeah, it was I mean, short at least. At least she died quickly. And, yeah. uh, and then Nailhead comes up and, and pulls off another square of flesh to nail onto his face off of. Yeah, that, that's what he's, he's just slowly rebuilding his, his face and the rest of his flesh with, face, with skin that he peels off of other things. And then push pigeons onto his, his head with his giant nails. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but uh, <laughs> Jesus, what else was in here? So yeah, that, that's sort of the there big was a, scene. There was a wonderful line. Um, well, it was actually a wonderful series of lines where just basically it's right before uh, Nico summons uh, just everything for the first time, and uh, you know Stevens like talking to him on camera. He's just like, "Haven't you had enough?" And he's just like, "In a word, no." <laughs> Uh, which was really funny. He's just like, and then the next line after it is amazing. He's just like, you know, that's the problem with you, Stephen. You let your parents cut your balls off at every turn. I'm like, that's really just, you know, block that metaphor, buddy. Uh, you got, yeah, I, because I mean, yeah, if someone's got you by the balls, okay. If someone took your balls, okay. But they can't just keep cutting your balls off. If they like cut your balls mates. off, your balls are gone. It's not. It's not how balls work. They don't. It's not like a lizard's tail. You know. It's maybe this is like the story of Prometheus, where instead of you know the 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 falcons eating out his liver every day and it regrowing, his parents cut his balls off every day and they regrow. Or it can be like the tail of Sisyphus, for... and every yeah. every day he has to push his balls back up uh, <laughs> into his balls, and then and then his parents come along and cut him off, and he has to go down and push him back up the hill again. Um, oh, um, I love the fact that you can actually tell exactly when the vagrant lost contact with pop culture because he refers to the two of them as preppies. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I smell privilege. Yeah, yeah I, I do like that there was the closest thing we could probably hope for for, uh, for a hobo dragon telling someone to check their privilege, though. That was, yeah. I giggled a little bit when I heard the line. Uh, there was a couple other things. You know, okay, so let's talk about lingering wounds and whatnot uh even staying away from the should you really be able to shotgun someone to death in you know a centipede's domain uh we've got dad gets gut shot from really nearby with a shotgun and then spends the rest of the film dying of it eventually eventually dying uh and then we've got the the not dad guy uh dr ross Bradley. bradley uh he gets his face cut off by was it by the hobo dragon i think yeah. it was mm-hmm. yeah because he, he shoots he finds the hobo dragon in the oh, backyard God, yes. and then they go out there and they're just like what are you doing here and the hobo dragon's just sitting there menacingly i mean standing there menacingly and then eventually uh, bradley grabs the shotgun from ross shoots him and he's just like well we're done here and then you know like the the, the vagrant just sort of like rises you know upward yep. pops and, like, right back up and just like you know pounces on him and cuts his cuts his face up um, and then does I, I forget how they get him away? Does does he get shot again? I I I don't know. I think I think maybe they maybe he's just like huh, that's what you get. Oh, you know what he does? He's got his he's got he cuts he cuts Ross's face off, and it's mm-hmm. hanging off his curved oh, flaying knife, and and he's 
and like the the rest of the family's inside, like you know, mom and not mom and 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 Emma are inside and they're coming out because they heard gunshots. But in the meantime, Hobo Dragon finishes cutting off Ross's face and then he's got it sort of hanging from his knife. And it didn't look like enough face to me. At first I thought maybe it was just his forehead he cut off or something. Yeah, that's anyway, what I thought too. Yeah, it was like, it was not, there was not enough face hanging off that knife. But he's sort of holding it up and he looks at dad and he gives him a shh thing with his finger in front of his mouth and, and wanders off into the darkness. Uh, and then they all come out and there's... Ross laying there faceless and they drag him inside and he like dies immediately. He dies like within a minute from losing his face. And that's not actually, you don't die that like, yeah. that. you know, it's like, it, it's a bad deal. You're going to, you're going to the hospital for darn sure. And, and you've got a lifetime of, you know, skin graft and, and, and reconstructive surgery and maybe a serious infection problem in the, you know, short to medium term from having no skin on your face. But uh, you don't, yeah, you, you, you're not exactly bleeding out there. Yeah. But he just mysteriously dies, and then dad lingers with a point-blank shotgun round to the chest. It's, it's yeah, seems, seems, a little, seems a little inconsistent. Seems like they just sort of needed it to happen, so let's make it happen. I think it would have been so much better if both of the father figures had stuck around lingering. Like if, if faceless Ross was stuck sitting on like a love seat next to Emma. Yeah. And then when the whole, you had an affair conversations going on, not only is there the discomfort between dad and mom and dad and, and the, the not mom, but also Ross just sitting there moaning and be like, Oh no, this too. Oh, this day couldn't get any worse. You know, that would have been, <laughs> I think that would have been it added some more energy to the scene. It would have been a little bit more fun. <laughs> Oh, um, there was a, there was a scene when uh, Stephen, you know, when he came back, he's just hanging out by the pool, having memories, and you know they all join him and they ask him, you know, what's up? And like after he tells the story of you know what happens and you know the, the the killing of the hookers and stuff, he sort of like does this very dramatic like I've got the vapors passing out like you know 180 degree twirl thing where he just like falls into somebody's arms like backwards. Yep. I really want to see the blooper reel on that. I feel like he just dropped to the floor repeatedly before they got that done. And I really want to see them fuck that up. Yep. Yeah. Oh, and there was another wonderful scene when, um, uh, I don't remember if this is when Steven's mother or his sister was talking to him. Like when he was, <laughs> he drank soup menacingly. I, I still can't figure out how he did that. But at one point when he's drinking the soup, he's like making direct eye contact with her. And he's like menacingly drinking the soup. Anyway, so um, somebody, he's just, and somebody asked him about the box. And he's just like, it's a key. And they're like, a key to what? And, you know, there's this beat, and he, like, looks off into the middle distance, and you think he's, you know, he's going to give you, like, one of those. It's like, it's a key to the ultimate reality. He's just like, I don't know. And then there's just, like, another pause, and he's just like, I, I, I'm not sure. And then that's it. <laughs> it's like, well, <laughs> did you guys forget to write some script? Ah, <laughs> uh, Yeah. So, so, so Pinhead, let's, uh, to, to return briefly to the sister and the ending of the movie and the, the boxing, while they're in you know, the dimensional foyer and everybody's getting flayed and drugged off uh, and, and so on, Pinhead does, he's basically talking about how they've all lost their sense of worldly desire and how he's basically not interested in any of them, even though he's going to take like, mom off into the, the distance to be tortured forever anyway. But, but he, he's basically dismissing all of them as not even having any good, uh, terrible wants and needs with him. And they're all deadened. Like, I think the idea is they're cynical and, and they're, made, uh, they're made tired of the world by the 
shitty lives they've led or something, which seems like a weird inconsistent thing to even beef on people about from his perspective because he's all about exploring. But anyway, regardless, he's sort of giving that and then he makes the pointed exception except for Emma, except for except for Sis. And he straight up prophesizes that she's the bad seed that's carrying on the the the, the terribleness and that she'll eventually she'll come a calling. You know, she's gonna she'll be back. She'll be uh, knocking on his door. She won't be able to stay away. She's she's got it for the pinhead. Uh and, and Is that what he was? Impl- I thought he was implying she was pregnant. Um, I don't th- think so. It's possible. Maybe, maybe that. Maybe that's what they're going for with the seed. But I guess, I guess we've established from Nico as Stevens' uh, rant during his big exposition fest with a shotgun that he didn't have, in fact, have sex with her, and he presumably took her virginity. So yeah. maybe 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 she in fact is carrying his seed. Maybe that's what we're getting at. I, I I didn't really consider that angle, but I guess the the ham-handed dialogue in this film suggests if they're going to say seed, they probably actually mean impregnation, literally even rather than just the idea of a sort of metaphysical carrying of the water. I'll buy that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, anyway, um, it, it, it feels yeah. like it feels like really setting up for a potential notional sequel if they could somehow find the two weeks to sit down and write another film that takes off, you know, the adventures of. It's Sarah just like a Connor. script writing reflex to re- leave room open for a sequel when you know full well there's not going to be a sequel. Yep. Well, they they may have known full well that they need to do the same thing in another six years or something. You know, ah. they got to keep exercising that option. Well, and they made this like they were in the process of trying to get made an actual proper reboot boot that also would have exercised the option, I'm sure, is the idea. But that was just kept not coming together. And obviously it still hasn't because there still isn't a new proper Hellraiser film. Um, so this was that was part of how this happened, I think, is they just were trying so hard to make that actually happen enough to fulfill the obligation that they put this off until the last minute. We're like, oh, no, okay. we're not. We don't have our deal together. We're not getting the proper film made. Let's just get this out there. Uh, so it's entirely. I want to see this. I, I, I want to see the stoner comedy that's actually a documentary about the making of this movie. It's like, <laughs> oh, dude, we got to make this movie in eleven days, or they're going <laughs> to close down the frat house. <laughs> Seriously, it's oh man, it would be it would be a better film. Oh, Winchester so won't let the alphas graduate if we don't shoot a Hellraiser movie. Yeah, they're gonna <sighs> they're gonna close the orphanage. Um, <laughs> Hell's oh, Brothers. So, um, there was a there was a line in this movie that literally just sums up ninety percent of this movie. Where this is right before uh, Ross and Bradley go out to investigate the backyard, and the whole thing with the vagrant happens. Where you know, like the creepy house stuff is happening, and you know the lights are out, and you know there's there's all sorts of. I know then, the su- um, I know the line you're going to say. I, I think continue. I forget. I'm pretty sure it's Ross that gets up and says this. He's just like, none of this adds up, and we're just sitting here talking. Yep, it's like a, a character became briefly, dangerously close to becoming self-aware about the film. Like the, the script became self-aware and was trying to crawl out through one of the characters' mouth. Uh, Maybe it was like a script note that accidentally made it in. <laughs> the executive producer was like, you know, yeah, around here talking exactly. It, oh God! Yeah, I, I laughed so loud at that uh, at that moment. I also want a, a little note when uh, when Stephen's going off to kill a prostitute to uh, give blood to to Nico in the mattress or whatever. Uh, he goes and finds 
Well, the first prostitute he finds, it seems like he trips a... So this this is order of events. Is this when he's like wearing that shirt all weird? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 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 so Nico and Steven... Nico has opened the box and presumably been killed and flayed and taken away to Hell Zone by... Uh, by Pinhead. And so... The implication is that Steven then, in shock from having seen his kill, his best friend who's an asshole, uh, murdered and flayed and taken away by some dark force from a dimension beyond Ken, is wandering in shock through the streets of Mexico, uh, the streets of a set that's supposed to be Mexico, yeah. uh, and and wanders past... And a he's prostitute. wearing a button-down shirt. Uh, I just have to. I have to mention this. He's he's wearing this button-down shirt, and it's he's supposed to look disheveled. So it's off like halfway, like down, like his back, and like one of the sleeves is like around his elbow, like where the sleeve starts. It looks like it's more effort to actually wear the shirt like that than it would be to put it on properly. Yeah, to put it on and take it off. But he's so in shock, I guess, that he can't manage not to do this. So he's wandering on the street in this state of total, like, apparent shock and despondency and wanders past a prostitute. And she's like, oh, hey, you got 100 bucks? You want to have a good time? And it's like, yeah. And it's like, uh, I, don't think, I, I don't think he would have been responsive in that situation to a, a pickup. But in any case, he takes her back. And we have the sex scene described earlier with the, the, the grumpy from behind and then the murdering. He, he actually kills her with the box, uh, a couple good whacks to the head with it. And then, and then Nico pops out that her blood brought me back. I want to say this is probably not the mattress where Nico died in the first place because Nico probably yeah. died on the floor in some other room. So why would the blood hitting the mattress even – why would he come back there? He's just like anywhere there's any blood, he can come yeah. back. And, uh, so that didn't really make all that. But 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 so so we get a recreation of you know you know thematically of the Frank Julia thing here, where uh, Nico as Frank uh, recruits Stephen as Julia to help bring him back by bringing him blood, as we saw in in, in the first film, and then again in the in the second film with Julia and Doctor uh, Gennard. Uh, and so he kills some more prostitutes. Uh, and, and, and so the next prostitute we see him go and get, he, he, he walks up to her and, and he's like, hey, you know, you want to do a thing? And, and she's like, uh, yeah, I don't even remember lines. They were forgettable lines. It was a very short discussion. And then he grabs her wrist violently to be like, no, no, we're going to go do this. And I kind of feel like, you know, the John who wanders up to you and within like seconds is grabbing your wrist angrily. Probably not the guy you, you you go home with. Probably you say, "Hey, you know, get all get lost." Like uh, I don't want to be murdered by a strange man. Yeah. You know, it's it, it was just a weird note that someone's like, "Oh yeah, this seems like a really good idea. I'm going to use my street smarts to." You know, the the other thing is that he begins to kill her by strangling her to death, which again continues the Hellraiser tradition of picking the least efficient way of killing somebody. Uh, you know, there was I, there was there were things in that room. He already beat her, the previous prostitute, to death with a box. He had the box on him. At the very least, he could have done that. There was other items in there, but no, he begins choking her, which is takes a while and a lot of strength, and is pretty complicated, especially you know because you have to concentrate on it. It was just just of all things, and then he notices uh, what, what does he notice? The baby. She crying? has a baby. Yeah, there's a baby yeah, crying. So at right. last, we've got a, a restatement of the baby crying that showed up a number of times around the box in previous films. Although in this case, it's just an actual baby actually crying. Yeah. 
and um and then yeah so uh what is it uh nico emerges from behind them and he's wearing a uh you know his face is a, he's he's you know he's fleshless so and but he's he looks like he wrapped part of his face in bandages and he's also wearing a hoodie and i have to say that actually looked pretty cool yeah like the uh yeah and then he um you know then he's uh steven can't do it so yeah, nico kills her i guess yeah but um you know what i i just had an idea what if None of the supernatural stuff in this movie actually happened. What if, you know, like, Steven at some point just goes crazy, kills Nico, kills a bunch of prostitutes, comes home, shoots everybody, and then kills himself? And that's actually what happens in this movie. He doesn't actually become, you know, Nico doesn't actually become Steven. Steven is just horribly changed by this horrible trip to Mexico where people die and he starts killing people. I kind of like this theory, like it's all a psychotic break. Yeah. That's that's wildly different reading the film number two. We'll, we'll attach that to the uh, pinhead as literal understudy thing and uh, <laughs> see if we can <laughs> get something out of this. Uh, man, I think... I think that's all my notes. I'm glad that this movie was like a breezy 75 minutes. Yeah, well, uh, I, 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 I wouldn't say it was breezy. I mean, it was 75 minutes, which I appreciated, but uh, I've, had, I've had far breezier hour and a quarters than, than this film. This, uh, there was a lot of pointlessly lingering shots, most of them inside the house during dialogue. And there was also some, uh, another Hellraiser film classic. There was totally some reused footage later in the film. Oh, yeah. Uh, like a, a film that is already only 74 minutes. They still had to pad out a bit with a couple minutes of reusing of the camcorder footage from earlier in, possibly just to make any contextual sense out of what they then shot on the, the, the proper camera to put together the retelling of what happened later in the film. But uh, yeah, it was sort of conspicuous. It wasn't just like a little flash. They used like a minute or two of that footage. Uh, I feel like if the, if you paste the dialogue of this movie to like standard movie dialogue pace, it would be a half hour long. Maybe. Yeah. Taught, tight, tight well, 40 minutes, like yeah, an can... episode of an hour-long procedural without the commercials. Yeah, like a weird outer limits or something. That's uh, exactly, you know what, I was actually thinking, I was watching it, and I'm just like, there are so many episodes of like the Outer Limits revival show that are so much better than this in every way. <laughs> the teleporter episode with the dinosaurs, that episode was great. Yeah, yeah. So that Everybody was, go watch the teleporter episode yeah. of the, that's with <laughs> the dinosaurs. They probably got it on Netflix. Go, uh, go take a look. Oh man, do they? I don't. I, I, I can't remember. It was Outer Limits was at some point, but I can't remember if it still is. Mm. You know, I, I I wrote down before I sat down and watched this. I uh, I, I wrote down a a like one sentence summary of what I could remember. And keep in mind, I saw this film like a year ago. You know. And obviously I have a keen interest in the Hellraiser films in general. And I remember a lot of specifics about other films in the franchise, but the best I could do trying to describe what this was before I got into rewatching it was a family of awful, unlikable upper middle-class people bicker pettily with each other after having convened in the living room to drink red wine and have a family meeting about summoning pinhead, which wasn't Super far off, I guess. I forgot uh, what all I mean. The right up until that were. last part, you just summarized the ice storm. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah I think I'm. I think I'm out of notes. Should we? Uh, 
uh, never do uh, watching this movie again. That's not even a sentence. Should we never do watching this movie again? Yes, whatever uh, you just suggested. If it involves never watch and this movie, I, I'll agree to it. I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's there's so many. Uh, I, I feel like I feel like you could take this movie and reconstruct the non-arguing in the living room portions of it almost entirely from clips from other Hellraiser films and make a really interesting sort of set of side-by-sides of this is clearly a reference to that. This is clearly a reference to that. They had, they had feathers. They had white feathers they at one did point, have feathers. which was clearly a callback to white feathers showing up in other films that never really made sense. But Hey, that happened before. Let's do it again. I don't know. It's such a, such a, again, the idea like this is, this is, we're familiar with the concept of fan service of like putting something in mostly to satisfy people already familiar with a franchise or, or genre that they're watching. This is like the bad restaurant service version of fan service. This is bad fan service. This is uh, like you don't tip for this kind of fan service. You know, it's. I can't imagine anybody paid to watch this movie. Like somebody's got to own this on DVD, right? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure they've sold, you know, a few thousand copies or something. All to one guy. <laughs> He's Who got, played Pinhead. Yeah. That poor guy. Yeah. I don't know. I wouldn't want to be him. Eight, $10 for the Blu-ray. Man, it's quite a bit. Well, they've got to count on not selling a whole lot of copies, right? So I mean, yeah. they, can't even, they can't even go cheap on bulk because there's only so many. I'd be really curious to see what the sales figures were like for this film. Because, uh, Yeah. So I feel like a, we can tweet at somebody and ask them exactly that question, and we will get the answer. I just don't know who. <laughs> Not Clive Barker. He'll just he'll just say something about his butthole. Oh wow uh, the um, the pseudo pinhead uh, the puppet the I, I guess they use the puppet as uh, in like the uh, the pseudo pinhead uh, appearance sometimes is on sale. On Amazon at the prop store, there's one left in stock because there's only one of them exists, and it's twenty five hundred dollars. Wow, get right on that. That'd be oh, okay. The- it's it's what they used when they uh, when Pinhead was uh, nailing the flesh into his in, into his head. They used a puppet for that scene, I guess. Uh, and um, that would be an awesome uh, uh, ventriloquism act, right there. You would, like, <laughs> he, he would scream wordlessly while you drank a glass of water. Like, yeah. It's, you know what? Well, you know what doesn't work really well on uh, on radio? Screaming wordlessly. Hey, everybody! Imagine the face I'm making while I make no noise. Yeah, didn't think that one through. Uh, God, this movie, this movie, this franchise. I, uh, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. We're. I wish, I wish the franchise could end on a more redemptive note because I, I kind of feel like this is a terrible place to say, "Wow, and that's it for Hellraiser." Because. Ah, uh, Jesus Christ! It's it's just it's such a sad slide downhill. It's so. I was talking eh. about. Uh, I, I I did. Uh, uh, I think I mentioned before. Uh, uh, Churl Jesse Jesse Holden's uh, um, podcast in the cut. He does. Uh, he watches movies with with a, a friend or two, and then discusses them. Um, and, uh, more of a variety of movies, and and generally uh, better movies too. Uh, but I, I was talking to him, uh, on his recent episode, uh, for a little bit about like the ossification of horror franchises, specifically thinking about this cause we've been going through this. And I realized my thesis was sort of like the way they go downhill, but I realized I'm not sure that like Nightmare on Elm Street, for example, really did go downhill the same way. It may have gone downhill in a similar way to some extent with like, you know, you get married to the tropes of your, 
your icon franchise character, your Freddy Krueger to our, our pinhead, say. But it didn't have the same, I'm not sure it really had the same terrible slide. They kept putting them out in theaters. They kept yeah. the proper releases. You know, even I think in this Jason is closer, movies. yeah, this is probably closer to like the way that uh, Puppet Master went downhill, where it was, you know, direct to video from like the third um, episode on. Yeah. Was it? Yeah. Which again, uh, Dimension, there you go. I mean, it's, it's oh, kind of, yeah. it's their, it's their purview, their... Their, oh wait, no! MO. It was direct to video from the second one on. Ah. Only the first one was uh, released in theaters. But they kept making them because yep. someone would pay enough to make it worthwhile. Through doubt, oh, there was one came out last year. Jesus Christ! If you got a thing, you got a thing. <sighs> uh, yeah, God, I just, I wish, I wish I had. I wish I had any hope or enthusiasm in my heart at this point. I wish I had a, I wish I had a sense of optimism about you know humanity or the world. But uh, this this franchise really has. I I uh, <laughs> part of me regrets having had this idea. It seemed it seemed such a great idea when we started, and I really yeah. enjoyed watching the first couple of films and even the ones after that. You know, for the most part. But these last couple have been. So bad, like, like, and yeah. it's weird because I feel like I don't know, like Hell World. The previous one was really, I felt it was a film that we were trying to have the characters be savvy about the franchise. Obviously, the fact, the idea that Hellraiser was something that existed within the world of the movie and then turned back in on itself, and this is a film that felt like it was very self-conscious about the franchise in a way yeah. that the last several haven't been. So it's all got all these notes. It's got the Pillar of Souls. It's got the chains. It's got the rafters. It's got the the peeling of the bell in the distance as the box opens. It's uh, got the degloving of people. It's got the older Cenobites brought back, or at least, a, you know, one or two of them. All these things that are like boom, 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 boom. Shot for shot, I would say it's it's more densely, intentionally Hellraiser-y than the last several films were, where they just really pinhead shoehorned in and a little bit of Cenobite action. Right. Uh, even though this film still managed to feel not insignificantly like something made up of Hellraiser tropes shoehorned into a bad script. It's just that in this case, the bad script was written intentionally for a Hellraiser movie where you had a bunch of people who weren't very Hellraiser y being unlikable on camera between the pinhead stuff. Uh, it's just, a, it's, just it's, it's a terrible, terrible couple of films to, to finish things yeah. off. I really hope they get around to making anything out of it ever again. That would be nice. Yeah. Like a real, uh, real actual reboot yep with what uh, but i mean have any of the was was there was a there was a halloween reboot that i don't remember going anywhere was yeah, there, far- there was a friday the 13th reboot that also i don't think went anywhere did they reboot uh i mean not friday the 13th there was a nightmare on elm street reboot yeah that didn't go anywhere did they reboot they didn't reboot friday the 13th yet right i don't i don't think they have no yeah, they they've sort of they they've been sort of more missed than hit on on those reboots. So. Yeah, well, and I don't think any of them have even been terrible per se. They just they didn't light the yeah. world's ass on fire. People weren't like, oh my god, we've fallen back in love with Freddy Krueger. You know, it's like, oh, yeah. oh well, you made that movie, okay, well, whatever. Um, so yeah, it's I, I'm kind of, it feels like it feels like something is due. But maybe comic book movies are just distracting everybody too much, and there's been too much new franchise stuff with the Hostel and the and the Saw yeah. movies sort of sucked up all the wind for uh, horror franchises for now or something. Yeah. I don't know. I'm curious to see what happens, but uh, 
Well, yeah, let's let, 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 let's aim for an up note here. Like after that, we're done. We're done with the Hellraiser movies, and there's yes. there's more. Yay! <laughs> the, the up note is that yes, that's over. But we're not done. I mean, I, I I'm enjoying this. We've talked yeah. about like you know, let's keep doing this. Obviously, so we'll have to watch things other than Hellraiser and and talk about them. And you had talked about. Uh, making the next thing we watch, uh, Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, which I like the idea of. We we both have seen that and enjoyed that, and obviously that's got a couple of notes that are even Hellraiser nods, however briefly, along with a yeah. lot of other good horror stuff that ties into a lot of things we've talked about. So I think I think that'll be a good time. That'll probably be yeah. what we do two weeks from now for our next episode. Yeah. And, and then we'll find a roadmap from there. So yeah, I'm excited about watching films that aren't as bad. Me too. And if you have any ideas, uh, the listener, you, the listener, I mean, um, you know, we've got that Facebook page. So just drop off, you know, just, you know, drop off anything. You know, if there's a movie you want to hear us discuss, you know, feel free to feel free to post it there or, you know, uh, somehow on Tumblr. I think Tumblr has a thing set up for you to be able to do that, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I think think we can even post one that's like an ask. Yeah. People could, in theory answer directly on the post yeah, yeah i think that's you doable. can email us and find us on metaphors but yeah if you have any particular movies that you really want to hear us talk about um you know that should be you know it doesn't even have to be on netflix or anything we could probably find uh copies anywhere so yeah let us know at retail establishments no oh, yes um, of course yes uh, i'm gonna go down to the old blockbuster <laughs> video <laughs> yeah. The old abandoned blockbuster video. Yep. Poke. Oh man, that would be that would be a great film. Like uh, just like a terrible, uh, terrible, terrible dumb comedy uh, horror parody. Where yeah, exactly. It'd be like VHS, except for instead of breaking into that freaky old guy's house, uh, you'd actually just be breaking into the blockbuster video that closed because it was cheaper to close it than to <laughs> than to properly get rid of it. And then you're like, oh my god, they've got all three. Santa's sleigh movies, uh, or whatever that was. Wasn't that like the I? You know they they did that back in the uh, old like Looney Tunes cartoons with bookstores, where like you know at night all the characters of the books come alive and have a party. And I could have sworn that either Tiny Toon Adventures or Animaniacs had did the exact same thing, except at a VHS store. It's where like all possible. the movies, uh, where all the movies you know came alive and like started doing stuff. And because I, I, I definitely remember like Al Pacino being in there somewhere. <laughs> Just try and track that down. I don't. I don't, I, I don't remember seeing it, but I did not uh, watch that in a completest fashion. So, uh, yeah, it's called video review. Ah, yeah. What the hell? Throw it up on the blog. Yeah, do it. It's up on YouTube. Well, all right. I think uh, this is this has been a relatively uh, short podcast here. I think we should wrap it up, and we're under two hours, which is amazing. Jesus. It's like, yeah. how did we do that? But uh, but yeah, so so we'll watch Cabin in the Woods in a couple of weeks, and in the meantime, uh, thank you very much. And that's for actually a movie I uh, suggest everybody watch before we watch it. And I would actually even suggest to not listen to the episode if you haven't watched the movie yet, because it's it's a good movie. Ki- yeah, it's, it's a good movie, and it's also the kind of movie that really benefits from you knowing nothing about it when you go into it. Yeah, it's it, it, it's a fun ride to see where they're going with it. It, yeah. it does an excellent job of taking advantage of the concepts of genre savviness mm-hmm. and uh, sort of character knowledge and, and horror tropes. And does a really it's a really fun piece of work. Joss Whedon did a nice job putting that thing yeah. together. Uh, so yeah, we'll watch that. In the meantime, hit the Facebook page, hit the Tumblr. Uh, just just type we have such films to show you into your nearest uh, search box, and and it'll find the things that we have because. 
strangely enough, no one else is using that name for anything. And uh, yeah. rate us, review us on iTunes if you can. Uh, it, it helps uh, raise the visibility of the podcast a little bit. And uh, and yeah, hit us up on Twitter, yell at us, uh, tell us why we're wrong and this new pinhead is an amazing uh, cinematic presence or, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, and uh, and yeah, anything else I'm forgetting, Yakov? I can't think of anything. Did we apologize for making everybody watch this movie? I don't think we did formally. At this point, uh, if you have At this point, uh, it's your fault. <laughs> yeah, I mean, fool you once, shame on us, but uh, come on. Fool you at about half a dozen times at this point. We could start you like know. an internet support group for survivors of Hellraiser. Maybe we could just like get around and just do talk therapy about how we're coping. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, do you want to do a quick uh, invent a Cenobite, maybe? Yes. Uh, um, you got something? You, you, not yet. You go oh, first. Okay. Oh, damn it. Uh, uh, see, as long as I'm making an um sound, it's not dead air. Okay. And the FCC doesn't find us. I've uh, 3D. He's uh, not CD. 3D. He uh, he's a big fan of horror movies, uh, and uh, he was a big fan of, of horror movies uh, back in the day before the modern 3D movement. So it was like the red blue uh, 3D glasses, and somehow I don't, I'm not even sure how he died or got. Maybe he just maybe he bought a box because he he's we're going genres again. He liked the Hellraiser movies, and so he found a box on eBay uh, from user Hobo Dragon five three seven. Uh, and he bought it, and he and he, he was showing, he was playing with it, and he's got his three D glasses on because he always wears them because that's his character. And he opens the box, and and he gets cenobited up, uh, and and so his his eyes are become actual glowing red and blue eyeballs, and he can look at objects and. By looking at them, he causes them to uh, either lose or gain depth. So he can like look at a drawing, and all of a sudden it'll come off the paper and it'll be wandering around. Or he can turn someone into a paper thin two D thing uh, just by staring at them, and that's his whole deal. He, yeah, three D. Okay, I've got soup bowl. His head is a bowl of soup out of which soup comes, and then he just sort of bows at you, and the soup shoots out violently and, and, and melts you. Because it's so hot. Exactly. And maybe it's got and some, that, like, blood viscer in it or something. That, that'd be, oh, yeah, it'd be like a soup full of eyeballs and stuff. And that'd be his tagline. He'd be like, careful, it's hot. Waiter, you know. there's a dye in your soup. <laughs> but then he'd have to kill a waiter. <laughs> Uh, they wouldn't let him bring himself into restaurants in, in the labyrinth, <laughs> though. They'd be like, hey, sorry, no no outside food. It's not out, it's inside me. Yeah, you know what I mean, buddy. Just fuck off, you know. And then the, the inevitable franchise crossover where it's uh, Soup Bowl versus Soup Nazi. Oh, yes. Oh, but Soup Nazi could be the protagonist. Soup Nazi could be the protagonist. He's, yeah, he's an anti-hero, sort of like, he's a jerk, nobody likes him, but he's sassy, and you like the fact that he's got attitude, and he ends up... Uh, confronting soup bowl and, and soup bowl is going to like kill someone. And he's like, Hey buddy, no soup for you. And blows his soup bowl head off. The the other way around where it turns out that the soup Nazi is an actual Nazi. And he's, you know, trying to bring Hitler back to life through soup necromancy. And uh, soup bowl realizes that this will, you know, 
defile the concept of soup far worse than, you know, hell could. And so he sets out on a mission to destroy uh, the soup Nazi and his evil experiment. Oh, so, so, so soup bowl becomes the, the exactly. I see. Yeah. I could, I could clear the name of soup from, you know, being uh, associated with Nazis instead of just all out, you know, indiscriminate violence. See, but I got to say, that sounds a little silly. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I know, but... <laughs> I could also... There, there's a third direction we could go where, like, they're both sort of antagonists, but they're, like, at cross-purposes. So sometime late in the... Like, in the third act of the film, they are they come to a head in their own side plots, and that's... So they end up sort of taking each other out. Uh, uh, so Soup Bowl soups up Soup Nazi... Uh, while Soup Nazi's trying to press the buttons to raise Hitler, and then and Soup Nazi, while he's melting, manages to pull out a shotgun and do the no soup for you and blows off soup. So they both die in a mess of, of soup and Naziness on the floor, and they're both taken out of the arc of the film, and our actual protagonists can continue with the mm. main plot. The, but the question here is, which one is played by Nick Cage and which one is played by John Travolta? <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking it could be like Doug Bradley and uh, Stefan Smith Collins, actually. <laughs> no, no, it'd have to be what's his name, the bartender. Oh God, uh, yeah, uh, 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 Carl Dupre. Yeah, he's ready for his big break. Yes, I think I think that would be a it'd be a, a a step up. It'd be a chance to let him stretch his wings a little bit in terms of being in questionable Hellraiser films. <sighs> good round, good round. I enjoyed that. Yes, yeah, that was a good was... time. All right. Well, um, so we will see everybody in uh, in two weeks. See in two weeks, Cabin in the Woods. Get it, yep. uh, watch it, enjoy it, and then uh, come enjoy discussing it with us. Except for you, don't get to discuss it uh, unless then, you call I, in. Unless you know exactly <laughs> when we're recording this, and you call in. Any really, really careful, attentive stalkers, you can be a participant in this show. Yeah, seriously, you pull that off, we'll, we'll put you in the... <laughs> I'll hold you right up on my microphone and say, hey, check this out, it's really weird, I'm calling the police. Uh, but only after we finish this call. Uh, all right, well, I think, uh, I think we've, we've nailed our traditional false ending where we don't stop even when we wound up for a stop, so uh, we can actually stop now, and yeah, we'll talk to y'all uh, in a couple weeks. Yep. Ta-ta Good night, for everybody. now. <laughs> <laughs>